This is Audible. Random House Audio presents The Happiness Advantage The Seven Principles of Positive Psychology That Fuel Success and Performance at Work by Sean Acor. This is Sean Acor. Mapping the Way to Success The human brain is constantly creating and revising mental maps to help us navigate our way through this complex and ever-changing world, kind of like a tireless, over-eager cartographer. This tendency has been wired in us through thousands of years of evolution. In order to survive, we must create physical maps of our environment, map out strategies for getting food and sex, and map out the possible effects of our actions. But these maps aren't just crucial to survival in the wilderness. They are vital to succeeding and thriving in the business world. If you are talking to a client, for example, and trying to decide whether to lowball or highball an offer, your brain is unconsciously, and sometimes consciously, creating an event map with two possible paths and then trying to predict where those paths will lead. If you lowball, you might predict this path will lead to the client making a counteroffer, which will eventually take you to the final destination of an accepted bid. If you highball it, on the other hand, the path may lead to the client getting offended and ultimately taking his business elsewhere. All human decisions involve this kind of mental mapping. They start with an I am here point, the status quo, from which a variety of paths radiate outward. The number, depending on the complexity of the decision and the clarity of your thinking at that moment. The most successful decisions come when we are thinking clearly and creatively enough to recognize all the paths available to us and accurately predict where that path will lead. The problem is that when we are stressed or in a crisis, Many people miss the most important path of all, the path up. On every mental map, after crisis or adversity, there are three mental paths. One that keeps circling around where you currently are. That is, the negative event creates no change. You end where you start. Another mental path leads you toward further negative consequences. That is, you are far worse off after the negative event. This path is why we are afraid of conflict and challenge. And one, which I call the third path, that leads us from failure or setback to a place where we are even stronger and more capable than before the fall. To be sure, finding that path in challenging times isn't easy. In a crisis, economic or otherwise, we tend to form incomplete mental maps. And ironically, the path we have trouble seeing is often the most positive, productive one. In fact, when we feel helpless and hopeless, we stop believing such a path even exists. So we don't even bother to look for it. But this is the very path we should be looking for because, as we'll see, our ability to find the third path is the difference between those who are crippled by failure and those who rise above it. Study after study shows that if we are able to conceive of failure as an opportunity for growth, 
we are all the more likely to experience that growth. Conversely, if we conceive of a fall as the worst thing in the world, it becomes just that. Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, reminds us that we are not imprisoned by our circumstances, our setbacks, our history, our mistakes, or even staggering defeats along the way. We are freed by our choices. By scanning our mental map for positive opportunities and by rejecting the belief that every down in life leads us only further downward, we give ourselves the greatest power possible. The ability to move up, not despite the setbacks, but because of them. In this chapter, you'll learn how. Post-traumatic growth. In today's society, it's all too easy to overlook the third path. One particularly salient example of this is the fact that when soldiers are headed to combat, psychologists commonly tell them that they will return either normal or with post-traumatic stress disorder. What this does, in effect, is give these soldiers a mental map with only two paths, normalcy and psychic distress. Yet while PTSD is of course a well-documented and serious consequence of war, and while war can be so horrifying, their returning normal might be a very attractive promise. Another large body of research proves the existence of a third, far better path, post-traumatic growth. Bereavement, bone marrow transplantation, breast cancer, chronic illness, heart attack, military combat, natural disaster, physical assault, refugee displacement. If this reads like a random clip from an alphabetized nightmare list of the very worst things that can befall us, that's because it basically is. But it also happens to be a list of events that researchers have found to spur profound positive growth in many, many individuals. Psychologists have termed this experience adversarial growth or post-traumatic growth to distinguish it from the better-known term post-traumatic stress. When I encountered this newer body of research for the first time, I was actually quite upset. Why had I not heard of it before? I felt like the world had been censoring research that was not only surprising, but could improve thousands of lives. And we're not just talking about a few fringe studies, but many distinguished ones. Over the last two decades, psychologist Richard Tedeschi and his colleagues have made the empirical study of post-traumatic growth their mission. While Tedeschi admits that the idea itself is ancient, surely you've heard the maxim, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. He explains it has only been in the last 25 years or so that this phenomenon, the possibility of something good emerging from the struggle with something very difficult, has been the study of systematic theorizing and empirical investigation. Thanks to this study, today we can say for certain, not just anecdotally, that great suffering or trauma can actually lead to great positive change across a wide range of experiences. After the March 11, 2004 train bombings in Madrid, for example, psychologists found many residents experienced positive psychological growth. So too do the majority of women diagnosed with breast cancer. What kind of positive growth? Increases in spirituality, compassion for others, 
openness, and even, eventually, overall life satisfaction. After trauma, people also report enhanced personal strength and self-confidence, as well as a heightened appreciation for and a greater intimacy in their social relationships. Of course, this isn't true for everybody. So what distinguishes the people who find growth in these experiences from those who don't? There are a number of mechanisms involved, but not surprisingly, mindset takes center stage. People's ability to find the path up rests largely on how they conceive of the cards they have been dealt. So the strategies that most often lead to adversarial growth include positive reinterpretation of the situation or event, optimism, acceptance, and coping mechanisms that include focusing on the problem head-on, rather than trying to avoid it or deny it. As one set of researchers explains, it appears that it is not the type of event per se that influences post-traumatic growth, but rather the subjective experience of the event. In other words, the people who can most successfully get themselves off the mat are those who define themselves not by what has happened to them, but by what they can make out of what has happened. These are the people who actually use adversity to find the path forward. They speak not just of bouncing back, but of bouncing forward. Eureka, we failed. While many of us, thankfully, live lives free of serious trauma, we all experience adversity of one kind or another at some point in our lives. Mistakes, obstacles, failure, disappointment, suffering. We have many words to describe the degrees of hardship that could befall us at any given moment in our personal or professional lives. And yet with every setback comes some opportunity for growth that we can teach ourselves to see and take advantage of. As my mentor Tal Ben-Shahar likes to say, it's not that everything happens for the best, but instead that we can make the best of everything that happens. The most successful people see adversity not as a stumbling block, but as a stepping stone to greatness. Indeed, early failure is often the fuel for the very ideas that eventually transform industries, make record profits, and reinvent careers. We've all heard the usual examples. Michael Jordan cut from his high school basketball team. Walt Disney fired by a newspaper editor for not being creative enough. The Beatles turned away by a record executive who told them that guitar groups are on their way out. In fact, many of their winning mantras essentially describe the notion of falling up. I've failed over and over again in my life, Jordan once said, and that is why I succeed. Robert F. Kennedy said much the same. Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. And Thomas Edison, too, once claimed, that he had failed his way to success. For this very reason, many venture capitalists will only hire managers who have already experienced their share of business flops. A spotless resume is not nearly as promising as one that showcases defeat and growth. So instead of putting a wall around failure as if it's radioactive, one consultant explains, companies should be having failure parties. Coca-Cola lives this creed to great effect. In 2009, Coke's CEO actually started his annual investors meeting 
not by trumpeting the company's many successes, but by listing all of their failures. Ever heard of OK Soda, Surge, or Chocolate? Probably not. The point of highlighting all of these failures was to let the investors know that mistakes would sometimes be made and money would sometimes be lost, but that from these failures come valuable lessons, all of which have contributed to Coca-Cola's continuing triumphs. Harvard Business Review points out that the smartest companies even commit errors on purpose, just to spur the kind of creative problem-solving that leads to the most innovative ideas and solutions. For example, back during Bell Telephone's heyday, the company usually required deposits from its high-risk customers, but it once purposely let 100,000 of these customers slide to see who would pay their bills on time regardless and who would not. With this information, the company was able to design a far more efficient screening process, one that ended up adding millions of dollars of revenue. As the Harvard Business authors conclude, making mistakes like this is a powerful way to accelerate learning and increase competitiveness. It's for this reason that however counterintuitive it may seem, psychologists actually recommend that we fail early and often. In his book, The Pursuit of Perfect, Tal Ben-Shahar writes that we can only learn to deal with failure by actually experiencing failure, by living through it. The earlier we face difficulties and drawbacks, the better prepared we are to deal with the inevitable obstacles along our path. Studies have borne this out. In one experiment, where 90 people went through a software training program, half were taught to prevent errors from occurring, while the other half were guided into mistakes during training. And lo and behold, the group encouraged to make errors not only exhibited greater feelings of self-efficacy, but because they had learned to figure their own way out of mistakes, they were also far faster and more accurate in how they used the software later on. How the Third Path Gets Hidden Unfortunately, the path from failure to success is not always easy to spot. In the midst of a crisis, we can get so stuck in the misery of the status quo that we forget another path is available. I saw this firsthand as the 2008 financial crisis swiftly and viciously pulled the floor out from under an entire workforce. One day in particular sticks out in my mind. I was in a Manhattan skyscraper overlooking the void left seven years earlier by the September 11th attacks. That chilling memory was perhaps reason enough to feel qualms about speaking about the psychology of happiness to a group of senior vice presidents at a global credit card company. As I walked into the room and was hit by palpable despondency, these qualms only multiplied. Instead of the confident smiles and direct eye contact every speaker hopes to receive from an audience, I was met with ashen faces and utter silence. There was still about a half an hour until my talk, and the employees were on a break from their morning meeting. Usually during breaks like this, everyone is typing furiously on a Blackberry while simultaneously gulping coffee and chatting with at least four people. But not this time. The head of HR quickly pulled me aside and started speaking in anxious, hushed tones. He told me that the group had just moments before been informed of the company's planned response to the economic collapse 
which included vast restructuring, drastic changes to job responsibilities, and massive layoffs. These people still had their jobs, he told me, but many would be losing valuable team members and colleagues, and nobody's career would be the same as it had been at daybreak. Before I could fully process the shifting of the ground, I realized a microphone was being attached to my shirt. Rarely have I dreaded talking about happiness, but this was one such moment. Over the next few weeks and months, I paced the hallways of Fortune 500 firms in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Singapore, Sydney, London, and New York, waiting to speak hard on the heels of announcements that bonuses were being deep-sixed and workforces cut practically in half. At each company, I found more than a few managers and employees who were so completely frozen with fear they were unable to take any kind of action. Their mental maps seemed stuck on the grim present, or worse, focused on paths that led further downward to places like unemployment or bankruptcy. One unhappy manager at a small manufacturing company in Seattle told me that while her team used to be famous for its lively meetings, she now found herself staring into zombie eyes and mute mouths. Another executive from a construction company in Johannesburg lamented that his usually extroverted sales force was avoiding client calls, not wanting to deliver more bad news. They couldn't see a positive future for these clients or for themselves, so why bother? At the headquarters of one global financial firm, I walked onto the catwalk above the expansive trading floor, famous for being the size of four football fields stacked back to back. Usually packed to the gills and vibrating with energy and activity, the giant room this time was wrapped in an ominous hush. People were walking around the empty desks with heads down, avoiding eye contact, and as it seemed to me, avoiding work altogether. Right when extra effort was most needed, the people I kept meeting seemed paralyzed, like they had given up. What was going on? Learning Helplessness To understand the psychology of failure and success in the modern business world, we need to step back briefly to the tail end of the age of Aquarius. In the 1960s, Martin Seligman was not yet the founding father of positive psychology. He was only a lowly graduate student, studying the opposite of happiness in his university's laboratory. Older researchers in Seligman's lab were doing some experiments with dogs, pairing noises like a bell with small electric shocks to see how the dogs would eventually react to the bell alone. Then after this conditioning was complete, the researchers would put each dog in a shuttle box, a large box with two compartments separated by a low wall. In one compartment, the dogs would get shocked, but on the other side, they would be safe from shocks and it was easy to jump over the wall. The researchers predicted that once the dogs heard the bell, they would immediately jump into the safe half of the box so they could avoid the shock they knew would follow. But that's not at all what happened. As Seligman now tells the story, he remembers walking into the lab one day and overhearing the older researchers complaining. It's the dogs, they lamented. The dogs won't do anything. Something's wrong with them. Before the experiment started, the dogs had been able to jump over the barriers just fine. But this time, they were just lying there. While the researchers contemplated what seemed to be a failed experiment, 
Seligman realized the value of what they had just stumbled upon. They had accidentally taught the dogs to be helpless. Earlier, the dogs had learned that once the bell rang, a shock was sure to follow, no matter what. So now, in this new situation, they didn't try jumping to the safe half of the box because they believed there was nothing that they could do to avoid the shock. Just like the workers at the Johannesburg Construction Company, they essentially figured, why bother? After decades of studying human behavior, Seligman and his colleagues found that the same patterns of helplessness that he saw in those dogs are incredibly common in humans. When we fail, or when life delivers us a shock, we can become so hopeless that we respond by simply giving up. The fact is that in our modern, often overstressed business world, cubicles are the new shuttle boxes, and workers the new dogs. In fact, one study shows just how closely we humans resemble our canine counterparts. Researchers took two groups of people into a room, turned on a loud noise, and then told them to figure out how to turn it off by pressing buttons on a panel. The first group tried every combination of buttons, but nothing worked to stop the noise. Another example of devious psychologists at work. The second group, acting as a control, was given a panel of buttons that did successfully turn off the noise. Then both groups were given the same second task. They were put into a new room, the equivalent of a shuttle box, and were once again treated to an obnoxious noise. This time, both groups could easily stop the noise by simply moving a hand from one side to the other, just like the dogs could easily move to the other side of the box. The control group quickly figured this out and stopped the blare. But the group that had first been exposed to a noise they couldn't stop now just let their hands lay there, not even bothering to move them or try to make the noise stop. As one of the researchers said, it was as if they had learned they were helpless to turn off noise, so they didn't even try, even though everything else, the time and place, all that, had changed. They carried that noise helplessness right through to a new experiment. Economic Whiplash Shanghai is a city you can appreciate just for the sheer boomtown wonder of it all. As recently as the mid-1990s, much of the city, now home to 19 million people, was still farmland. But as foreign investment flowed into China and development took off, 20-story office buildings, once the city's highest, suddenly found themselves dwarfed by the 100-story behemoths that crowded the skyline, seeming to promise a prosperity that had no end in sight. By the time I made my first trip to Shanghai, in the summer of 2008, that promise had been put on hold, not just in China, but around the globe. Everywhere I went, from the 104th floor of the office building in the city's Pudong Financial District to the New York Stock Exchange trading floor, I found people hijacked by stress. Unable to predict where the financial tsunami would head next, they were straitjacketed by despair and incapable of moving forward. I didn't fully understand what was keeping them so frozen in inaction until a manager told me point blank, market forces are out of my control, share prices are out of my control, 
My boss's decisions are out of my control, so there's nothing I can do. The waters feel like they're getting higher each day. What I've realized from many companies I've spoken with over the past two years is that the meltdown of 2008 and its aftershocks had instilled a form of learned helplessness, a belief in the futility of our actions and many of the world's workers. But the problem is, when we eliminate any upward options from our mental maps, and worse, eliminate our motivation to search for them, we end up undermining our ability to tackle the challenge at hand. And it doesn't end there. When people feel helpless in one area of life, they not only give up in that one area, they often overlearn the lesson and apply it to other situations. They become convinced that one dead-end path must be proof that all possible paths are dead ends. A setback at work might lead to despondency about one's relationship, or a rift with a friend might discourage us from trying to form bonds with our colleagues, and so on. When this happens, our helplessness spirals out of control, impeding our success in all areas of life. It's the very definition of pessimism and depression, an event map with all dead ends, and a surefire route to failure. We don't have to stretch far to see this negative cycle on a larger social scale. Learned helplessness is endemic in inner-city schools, prisons, and elsewhere. When people don't believe there is a way up, they have virtually no choice but to stay as down as they are. Finding the Path Up You've probably heard the oft-told story of the two shoe salesmen who were sent to Africa in the early 1900s to assess opportunities. They wired separate telegrams back to their boss. One read, Situation hopeless. They don't wear shoes. The other read, Glorious opportunity. They don't have any shoes yet. Odds are the same two salesmen would send back similar emails today if they were sent to Alaska to sell air conditioners or to the Gobi Desert to sell swimsuits. The point, of course, is that when some people meet adversity, they simply stop looking for ways to turn failures into opportunities or negatives into positives. Others, the most successful among us, know that it's not the adversity itself, but what we do with it that determines our fate. Some will sit helpless, while others gather their wits, capitalize on their strengths, and forge ahead. A Tale of Two Brokers Imagine two stockbrokers. For simplicity, we'll call them Ben and Paul. Both are making high six-figure salaries, plus bonuses. Both have been in their positions for many years and expect to be in them for many years more. And then comes the financial tsunami that sweeps them both away. Paul is devastated. His way of life is at stake, as is a special order Mercedes. And every day brings worse news, a running invitation to sink deeper in despair. Ben, while initially just as upset, chooses to see the event as an opportunity to reevaluate his goals and pursue a new project. Similar backgrounds, almost identical professional experiences, very different outcomes. We all know people who have reacted to adversity like Paul, but Ben's story is just as real. Ben Axler was an associate director in the investment banking division at Barclays when he was unexpectedly laid off. Instead of feeling sorry for himself, he decided that there was no time like the present to make the career move he'd been dreaming of, and he started a hedge fund. In short, 
Ben capitalized on his bad luck by turning it into an opportunity. And the opportunity turned out to be a good one. Despite the down economy, he was able to sign up a whole new slew of clients and ended up both happier and better off financially than when he started, all because he was able to find the third path. Crisis as Catalyst Fortunately, just as personal crises can provide the foundation for positive individual growth, so can economic ones. They often propel companies to greater success than many business juggernauts of the 20th century, Hewlett-Packard and Texas Instruments among them, were actually launched during the Great Depression. Similarly, America's top companies have often used recessions to reevaluate and improve their business practices. As Time pointed out way back in 1958, though its message is just as relevant today, for every company that slims down its operation, another discovers new ways of doing things that should have been in effect for years, but were overlooked during the boom. Economic adversity forces companies to find creative ways to cut costs and inspires managers to get back in touch with the employees and operations on the ground floor. One company president admitted that going through a recession had actually proved invaluable. We found all sorts of revisions we could make to improve our operation. Now these revisions work so well, we wouldn't go back to the old way of doing things even if the recession ended tomorrow. This may have been written over 50 years ago, but one look at how the most successful companies have pulled themselves up from the recent recession tells us that it holds just as true today. The best leaders are the ones who show their true colors not during the banner years, but during such times of struggle. While leaders' natural reaction to financial crisis may be to lay low and wait for things to pick up, the Wall Street Journal stresses that this is exactly the wrong approach. Instead, managers should redouble their efforts because crises can be catalysts for creativity. Leaders who become paralyzed by the obstacles in front of them miss this great opportunity. Helplessness will drive down not just their own performance, but also employee well-being and their company's bottom line. On the other hand, leaders who find themselves energized by challenge and motivated by failure reap all kinds of amazing rewards. For example, when other leaders were struggling just to keep their companies afloat, Indra Nui, the CEO of PepsiCo, saw the recession as an opportunity to travel around the globe, boosting the spirits and trust of her employees in person. And this paid dividends. Not only did she strengthen the overall morale and performance of her company, but in 2009, Fortune voted her the most powerful woman in business. The point is that when faced with obstacles or failure, succumbing to helplessness keeps us down on the mat, while looking for the path of opportunity helps us pick ourselves up. With this in mind, here are a few strategies for finding that third path in our careers and professional lives. Change your counterfact. Consider the following scenario I've presented to business leaders in countries around the globe, always to the same effect. Imagine for a moment that you walk into a bank. There are 50 other people in the bank. A robber walks in and fires his weapon once. You are shot in the right arm. Now, if you were honestly describing this event to your friends and co-workers the next day, do you describe it as lucky or unlucky? When I pose the same question to executives in my training sessions, the response is generally and vociferously divided about 70-30.
70% claim it is a supremely unfortunate event. The other 30% claim to have been very unfortunate indeed. It's telling enough that the same event could inspire such different interpretations, but the real insight comes when I ask them to explain how they came to their decisions. People who are in the unfortunate group say something like the following. I could have walked into any bank at any time. This kind of thing almost never happens. How unlucky is it that I happened to be there and that I was shot? There's a bullet in my arm that's objectively unfortunate. I entered the bank perfectly healthy and I left in an ambulance. I don't know about you, Sean, but that's not my idea of a good time. One of my favorite responses came from a banker named Elsie with an impeccable British accent. This is fundamentally inconvenient, she said dryly. But my all-time favorite response, which I've actually heard more than once and always from someone on Wall Street, there were at least 50 other people in the bank. Surely someone deserved getting shot more than I did. With a response like that, I'm not sure that's true. These people cannot understand how a typical bank errand turned gunshot wound could be construed as fortunate. But then they hear the other side's explanation of the same event. I could have been shot somewhere far worse than my arm. I could have died. I feel incredibly fortunate. It's amazing that nobody else got hurt. There were at least 50 other people in the bank, including children. It's unbelievably lucky that everybody lived to tell the tale. Even though the responses differ dramatically, the point is that every brain in the room does the exact same thing. It invents, and that's an important word, a counterfact. A counterfact is an alternate scenario our brains create to help us to evaluate and make sense of what really happened. Here's what I mean. The people who saw the outcome as unlucky imagined an alternate scenario of not having been shot at all. In comparison, their outcome seems very unfortunate. But the other group invented a very different alternate scenario, that they could have been shot in the head and died, or that many other people could have been hurt. Compared with that, surviving is very fortunate. Here's the crucial part. Both the counterfacts are completely hypothetical. Because it's invented, we actually have the power in any given situation to consciously select a counterfact that makes us feel fortunate rather than helpless. And choosing a positive counterfact, besides simply making us feel better, sets ourselves up for the whole host of benefits to motivation and performance we now know accompanies a positive mindset. On the other hand, choosing a counterfact that makes us more fearful of the adversity actually makes it loom larger than it really is. For example, in one interesting study, researchers at the University of Virginia asked participants to stand on a skateboard at the top of a hill and estimate the slope of the hill below them. The more frightened and uncomfortable the subject was standing on the skateboard, the higher and steeper the slope appeared. When we choose a counterfact that makes us feel worse, we're actually altering our reality, allowing the obstacle to exert far greater influence over us than it otherwise should. Change your explanatory style. Most professionals face daily setbacks, but the life of a salesman is, almost by definition, fraught with failure and rejection. In many businesses, only one in 10 pitches leads to a sale, meaning that those salesmen experience rejection 90% of the time. 
This can get pretty demoralizing after a while, which helps to explain why there is such a high turnover among life insurance salesmen. In the late 1980s, the turnover had gotten so bad at MetLife that half the new salesmen were quitting in year one, and only one in five remained by the fourth year. All told, the company was losing over $75 million a year in hiring costs alone. That's when MetLife hired Martin Seligman, who by then had moved on from studying learned helplessness in dogs, and was now using these findings to explore how people bounce back from all kinds of adversity. Seligman had noticed that while most research subjects would indeed start to feel distressed and helpless after facing setback after setback, a consistent minority seemed immune. No matter what difficulty they faced, they always bounced right back. He soon discovered that they all shared a positive way of interpreting adversity, or what the researchers termed an optimistic explanatory style. Decades of subsequent study have since shown that explanatory style, how we choose to explain the nature of past events, has a crucial impact on our happiness and future success. People with an optimistic explanatory style interpret adversity as being local and temporary. That is, it's not that bad and it will get better. While those with a pessimistic explanatory style see these events as more global and permanent. That is, it's really bad and it's never going to change. Their beliefs then directly affect their actions. The ones who believe the latter statement sink into helplessness and stop trying, while the ones who believe the former are spurred on to higher performance. Virtually all avenues of success we now know are dictated by explanatory style. It predicts how well students do in high school and even how well new recruits do at the U.S. Military Academy. First-year plebes with a more optimistic explanatory style perform better than test scores predict and are less likely to drop out than their peers. In the world of sports, studies of athletes ranging from collegiate swimmers to professional baseball players show that explanatory style predicts athletic performance. It even predicts how well people recover after coronary bypass surgery. So when Seligman was brought on to help solve the problems the salespeople were having at MetLife, one of the first things he looked at was their explanatory style. And indeed, testing revealed that the agents with more optimistic styles sold 37% more insurance than those with pessimistic ones, and that the most optimistic agents actually sold fully 88% more than the most pessimistic ones. Furthermore, Agents who were more optimistic were half as likely to quit as were the pessimists. This was the answer MetLife was looking for. They decided to hire a special force of agents picked solely on the basis of explanatory style, and it paid off. The next year, these agents outsold their more pessimistic counterparts by 21%. During the second year, by 57%. Aware it had struck gold, MetLife decided to completely overhaul its hiring practices from that day on. If would-be agents failed the regular industry tests, but scored well in an evaluation of explanatory style, MetLife hired them anyway. And if they passed the industry test, but had a low score on explanatory style, the company rejected them, no matter how smart they seemed. The results? Within only a few years, MetLife's turnover had plummeted 
while its market share had increased by almost 50%. Learn your ABCDs. Of course, turning adversity into opportunity is a skill that comes more naturally to some than others. Some people already have an optimistic explanatory style. They automatically imagine alternative scenarios that make them feel fortunate, interpret setbacks as short-lived and small in scope, and see inherent opportunity where others see only foreboding. Others don't have an optimistic explanatory style. Luckily, these techniques can be learned. One way to help ourselves see the path from adversity to opportunity is to practice the ABCD model of interpretation. Adversity, belief, consequence, and disputation. Adversity is the event we can't change. It is what it is. Belief is our reaction to the event, why we thought it happened, and what we think it means for the future. Is it a problem that is only temporary and local in nature, or do we think it is permanent and pervasive? Are there ready solutions, or do we think it is unsolvable? If we believe the former, that is, if we see the adversity as short-term or as an opportunity for growth, or appropriately confined to only part of our life, then we maximize the chance of a positive consequence. But if the belief has led us down a more pessimistic path, helplessness and inaction can bring negative consequences. That's when it's time to put the D to work. Disputation involves first telling ourselves that our belief is just that, a belief, not fact, and then challenging or disputing it. Psychologists recommend that we externalize this voice, that is, pretend it's coming from someone else. So it's like we're actually arguing with another person. What is the evidence for this belief? Is it airtight? Would we let a friend get away with such reasoning? Or is the reasoning clearly specious once we step outside of ourselves and take a look? What are some other plausible interpretations of this event? What are some more adaptive reactions to it? Is there another counterfactual we can adopt instead? And finally, if the adversity truly is bad, is it as bad as we first thought? This particular method is called decatastrophizing, taking time to show ourselves that while adversity is real, it is perhaps not as catastrophic as we may have made it out to be. That may seem like a positive platitude stripped off of a Hallmark card, but the idea that things are never as bad as they seem is actually a fact based upon our fundamental biology. Because thousands of years of evolution have made us so remarkably good at adapting to even the most extreme life circumstances, adversity never hits us quite as hard, or for quite as long, as we might think. For example, we might assume that a horrible injury would forever alter our ability to be happy. But in fact, after initial adjustment and period of hardship, most victims of paralysis bounce back to just about the same level of happiness they experienced before. Simply speaking, the human psyche is so much more resilient than we even realize, which is why when faced with a terrible prospect, for example, the end of a love affair or of a job, we overestimate how unhappy it will make us and for how long. We fall victim to immune neglect, which means we consistently forget how good our psychological immune system is at helping us to get over adversity. Daniel Gilbert author of Stumbling on Happiness, 
has performed a number of studies showing immune neglect in action. College students overestimate how devastated they would feel at the end of a romantic relationship. Assistant professors predict that being denied tenure would lead to drastically lower levels of happiness, when in fact, professors denied tenure do not experience this at all. Adversities, no matter what they are, simply don't hit us as hard as we think they will. Just knowing this quirk of human psychology, that our fear of consequences is always worse than the consequences themselves, can help us move toward a more optimistic interpretation of the downs we will inevitably face. So the next time you catch yourself feeling hopeless or helpless about some snag in your career, some frustration at your job, or some disappointment in your personal life, remember that there is always a third path upwards. Your only task is to find it. And above all, remember that success is not about never falling down, or even simply about falling down and getting back up over and over like I did in the Helping the Elderly experiment. Success is about more than simple resilience. It's about using that downward momentum to propel ourselves in the opposite direction. It's about capitalizing on setbacks and adversity to become even happier, even more motivated, and even more successful. It's not falling down, it's falling up. Principle number five, the Zorro Circle. How limiting your focus to small, manageable goals can expand your sphere of power. According to legend, a masked hero named Zorro roamed what is now the southwestern United States, fighting for those who could not fight for themselves. Zorro was resolute, disciplined, and fearless, a combination that immortalized him as the popular hero of so many books, TV shows, and movies. Add to this the mix of his woody one-liners and effortless skill with women, and Zorro seemed to embody too many irresistible qualities for any one man, even one played by Antonio Banderas. But there is a lesser-known chapter to Zorro's story. According to legend, Zorro was not always that swashbuckler able to swing from chandeliers and overpower ten men with the slash of his sword. At the beginning of the film, The Mask of Zorro, we see him as the young and impetuous Alejandro, whose passion far exceeds his patience and discipline. His quest is to assail villains and right the injustices of the world, but he desires to do so immediately and spectacularly. The higher he flies, the farther he falls, until he soon feels out of control and utterly powerless. By the time the aging swordmaster Don Diego meets him, Alejandro is a broken man, a slave to drinking and despair. But Don Diego sees the young man's potential and takes him under his wing, promising Alejandro that mastery and triumph will come with dedication and time. In the hidden cave that serves as Don Diego's lair, the elder swordmaster begins Alejandro's training by drawing a circle in the dirt. Hour after hour, Alejandro is forced to fight only within the small circle. As Don Diego wisely tells his protege, the circle will be your world, your whole life. Until I tell you otherwise, there is nothing outside of it. Once Alejandro masters control of this small circle, 
Don Diego allows him to slowly attempt greater and greater feats, which, one by one, he achieves. Soon he is swinging from ropes, besting his trainer in a sword fight, even performing a set of push-ups over burning candles. Not the most practical skill to hone, but cinematically impressive nonetheless. But none of these achievements would ever have been possible had he not first learned to master that small circle. Before that moment, Alejandro had no command over his emotions, no sense of his own skill, no real faith in his abilities to accomplish a goal, and worst of all, no feeling of control over his own fate. Only after he masters that first circle does he start to become Zorro, the legend. Circle of Control The concept of the Zorro Circle is a powerful metaphor for how we can achieve our most ambitious goals in our jobs, our careers, and our personal lives. One of the biggest drivers of success is the belief that our behavior matters, that we have control over our future. Yet when our stresses and workloads seem to mount faster than our ability to keep up, feelings of control are often the first things to go, especially when we try to tackle too much at once. If, however, we first concentrate our efforts on small, manageable goals, we regain the feeling of control so crucial to performance. By first limiting the scope of our efforts, then watching those efforts have the intended effect, we accumulate the resources, knowledge, and confidence to expand the circle, gradually conquering a larger and larger area. Don Diego didn't teach young Alejandro how to be a swashbuckling swordsman overnight. Zorro started small, then little by little, mastered his ever-widening circle. His legendary success followed from there. Tending Plants and Careers the importance of control. Feeling that we are in control, that we are masters of our own fate at work and at home, is one of the strongest drivers of both well-being and performance. Among students, greater feelings of control lead not only to higher levels of happiness, but also to higher grades and more motivation to pursue the careers they really want. Similarly, employees who feel that they have high levels of control at the office are better at their jobs and report more job satisfaction. These benefits then ripple outward. A 2002 study of nearly 3,000 wage and salaried employees for the National Study of the Changing Workforce found that greater feelings of control at work predicted greater satisfaction in nearly every aspect of life, family, jobs, relationships, and so on. People who felt in control at work also had lower levels of stress work-family conflict, and job turnover. Interestingly, psychologists have found that these kinds of gains in productivity, happiness, and health have less to do with how much control we actually have and more with how much control we think we have. Remember that how we experience the world is shaped largely by our mindset. Well, the most successful people in work and in life are those who have what psychologists call an internal locus of control the belief that their actions have a direct effect on their outcomes. People with an external locus, on the other hand, are more likely to see daily events as dictated by external forces. It's easy to see why the former is more adaptive in work situations. If passed over for a promotion, for example, a person with an external locus of control might say, 
The people here don't recognize talent. I never had a chance. And subsequently, lose motivation. After all, if we believe nothing we do matters, we fall prey to the insidious grip of learned helplessness I described in the last chapter. On the other hand, someone with an internal locus will look for what he or she might have done better and then work to improve in that area. People with an external locus don't just duck the blame for failure, though. They also miss out on the credit for their successes, which can be equally maladaptive because it undermines both confidence and dedication. I once worked with a client who had such an external locus of control that no matter how many accolades she received, she always said that she just got lucky or that her boss had just been easy on her. She never felt that her own actions had much impact on her achievements. And as a result, she was never truly engaged or fulfilled by her work. One of the best places to understand the effect of locus of control on performance is in the world of sports. Think about how the best athletes act in those ubiquitous post-game press conferences. Do they blame their losses on the sun for getting in their eyes or the referee for making bad calls? Do they attribute wins to their horoscopes or lucky streaks? No. When they win, they graciously accept the praise they receive, and when they lose, they congratulate their opponent on a job well done. Believing that, for the most part, our actions determine our fates in life can only spur us to work harder. And when we see this hard work pay off, our belief in ourselves only grows stronger. This is true in nearly every domain of life. Research has shown that the people who believe that the power lies within their circle have higher academic achievement, greater career achievement, and are much happier at work. An internal locus lowers job stress and turnover and leads to higher motivation, organizational commitment, and task performance. Internals, as they are sometimes called, have even stronger relationships, which makes sense given the studies show how much better they are at communicating problem-solving, and working to achieve mutual goals. They are also more attentive listeners and more adept at social interactions, all qualities, incidentally, that predict success at work as well as at home. Because feeling in control over our jobs and our lives reduces stress, it even affects our physical health. One sweeping study of 7,400 employees found that those who felt that they had little control over deadlines imposed by other people had a 50% higher risk of coronary heart disease than their counterparts. In fact, this effect was so staggering, researchers concluded that feeling a lack of control over pressure at work is as great a risk factor for heart disease as even high blood pressure. But perhaps the most eye-opening example of how powerful the perception of control is doesn't come from the business world. It actually comes from the elderly. In one incredible study, researchers found that when they gave a group of nursing home residents more control over simple tasks in their daily lives, like putting them in charge of their own houseplants, not only did their levels of happiness improve, but their mortality rate actually dropped in half. It's hard to find a circle of control smaller than caring for a house plant. And yet, feeling mastery over even that tiny task actually extended their lives. 
Losing control. The dueling brain. Unfortunately, given how important it is to our success, we don't always feel in control. Some of us are inherently prone to an external locus, and the rest of us can fall into that mindset the second we feel overwhelmed by too many demands on our time, attention, and abilities. To fully understand how this happens, we need to take a closer look inside the brain. As we go about our daily lives, our actions are often determined by the brain's two dueling components. Our knee-jerk-like emotional system, let's call him the jerk, and our rational cognitive system, let's call him the thinker. The oldest part of the brain, evolutionarily speaking, is the jerk. And it is based in the limbic emotional region, where the amygdala reigns supreme. Thousands of years ago, this knee-jerk system was necessary for our survival. Back then, we didn't have time to think logically when a saber-toothed tiger jumped out of the underbrush. Instead, the jerk readily leapt into action. The amygdala sounded the alarm, flooded our body with adrenaline and stress hormones, and sparked an immediate innate reflex, a fight-or-flight response. It's thanks to the jerk, really, that we are all sitting here 10,000 years later. Today, fortunately, few saber-toothed tigers stalk our office parks. In the modern world, where life's problems are usually more complicated than flee or be eaten, the jerk's reflexive responses can sometimes do more harm than good. In particular, when it comes to decision-making, the jerk often gets us in a lot of trouble. That's why, over thousands of years of evolution, we've also developed the thinker, the rational system in the brain that resides mostly in the prefrontal cortex. This is what we use to think logically, draw conclusions from many pieces of information, and plan for the future. The thinker's purpose is simple, but it reflects a huge evolutionary leap. Think, then react. Most of our daily challenges are better served by the thinker, but unfortunately, when we're feeling stressed or out of control, the jerk tends to take over. This isn't something that happens consciously. Instead, it's biological. When we're under pressure, the body starts to build up too much cortisol, the toxic chemical associated with stress. Once the stress has reached a critical point, even the smallest setback can trigger an amygdala response, essentially hitting the brain's panic button. When that happens, the jerk overpowers the thinker's defenses, spurring us into action without conscious thought. Instead of think, then react, the jerk responds with fight or flight. We have become victims of what scientists call emotional hijacking. Over the past decade, researchers have been evaluating how this kind of emotional hijacking affects performance and decision-making at work. In one study, psychologist Richard Davidson used his expertise in neuroscience to pinpoint why certain people were particularly resilient in the face of stress, while others were so easily debilitated by it. He put both groups in identical high-stress situations, like solving difficult math problems in a short amount of time or writing about the most upsetting moments of their lives, while he simultaneously tracked their brain function using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. 
As each subject tackled the challenge at hand, Davidson watched both the rational and reflexive parts of the brain light up on the brain scan, dueling for supremacy. When he compared the patterns, he found that in the resilient individuals, the prefrontal cortex rapidly won over the limbic system. In other words, the thinker took over almost immediately from the jerk. The easily troubled group, on the other hand, exhibited a continuous rise in amygdala activity, which meant that the jerk had hijacked the thinker, overwhelming the brain's reasoning and coping capabilities and making the distress much worse. Hijacked at work. At this point, you might be wondering, what does all this brain activity have to do with achieving our goals at work? Quite a lot, actually. Psychologist Daniel Goleman, author of the groundbreaking book, Emotional Intelligence, has extensively studied the toll this emotional hijacking can take on our professional lives. When small stresses pile up over time, as they so often do in the workplace, it only takes a minor annoyance or irritation to lose control. In other words, to let the jerk into the driver's seat. When this hijacking occurs, we might lash out at a colleague or start to feel helpless and overwhelmed or suddenly lose all energy and motivation. As a result, our decision-making skills, productivity, and effectiveness plummet. This can have real consequences, not just for individuals, but for entire teams and organizations. At one large company, researchers found that managers who felt the most swamped by job pressure ran teams with the worst performance and the lowest net profits. A failing economy can be a powerful trigger for emotional hijacking too. Neuroscientists have found that financial losses are actually processed in the same areas of the brain that respond to mortal danger. In other words, we react to withering profits and a sinking retirement account the same way our ancestors did to a saber-toothed tiger. Daniel Kahneman, the only psychologist to have ever won the Nobel Prize for Economics, has made enormous strides in our understanding of how the dueling brain affects decision-making in business. Before he came onto the scene, the prevailing belief was that humans are rational decision-makers, that we make financial and economic decisions based on a rational assessment of potential profits and losses. But Kahneman and his colleague Amos Tversky proved just how wrong this is. One classic experiment, known as the ultimatum game, goes like this. Researchers invite two people who do not know each other into the lab. One of them is given 10 $1 bills and told to divide the money between himself and the other subject in any way he likes. He can keep all $10 for himself. He can split it $6 and $4, etc. Then he gives the recipient an ultimatum, take the money or leave it. Here's the catch. If the recipient chooses to leave it, both people get nothing. For traditional economists, this is fairly straightforward. A rational person will always take the deal, no matter how stingy. After all, even if it's only $1, that's still one more dollar than they came in with. But as it turns out, most recipients actually reject offers of $1 or even $2. Why? Because instead of rationally weighing their options, they allow their emotions, usually anger and annoyance at having been given a raw deal, to take over. This doesn't make rational sense, of course, 
because they're turning down a free $2 just to be spiteful, but it happens all the time. When neuroscientists investigate further, they find that the more active the limbic system is in the brain, the more likely the stingy offer will be rejected. As one researcher writes, these findings suggest that when participants reject an unfair offer, it appears to be the product of a strong, seemingly negative emotional response. I've seen the jerk wreak havoc in companies all around the world. It is the reason shareholders buy high and sell low, even when they know they should do exactly the opposite. It is also the reason we fall prey to market bubbles and the reason markets crash when those bubbles burst. As Jason Zweig points out in his book, Your Money and Your Brain, everyone knows that panic selling is a bad idea, but a company that announces it earned 23 cents per share instead of 24 cents can lose $5 billion of market value in a minute and a half. When our brain hits the panic button, reason goes out the window, and our wallets, our careers, and our bottom lines all suffer. Regaining control, one circle at a time. So how do we reclaim control from the jerk and put it back in the hands of the thinker? The answer is in the Zorro circle. The first goal we need to conquer, or circle we need to draw, is self-awareness. Experiments show that when people are primed to feel high levels of distress, the quickest to recover are those who can identify how they are feeling and put those feelings into words. Brain scans show verbal information almost immediately diminishes the power of those negative emotions, improving well-being and enhancing decision-making skills. So whether you do it by writing down feelings in a journal or talking to a trusted coworker or confidant, verbalizing the stress and helplessness you are feeling is the first step towards regaining control. Once you've mastered the self-awareness circle, your next goal should be to identify which aspects of the situation you have control over and which you don't. When I worked with the Shanghai manager and his colleagues I mentioned in the last chapter, I asked them to write out all their stresses, daily challenges, and goals, then to separate them into two categories, things that they have control over and things they don't. Anyone could do this simple exercise on a piece of paper, an Excel spreadsheet, or even a napkin over post-work martinis. The point is to tease apart the stresses that we have to let go of because they're out of our hands while at the same time identifying the areas where our effort will have a real impact so that we can then focus our energy accordingly. Once my trainees are armed with a list of what is indeed still within their control, I have them identify one small goal they know they can quickly accomplish. By narrowing their scope of action and focusing their energy and efforts, the likelihood of success increases. Think of it this way. The best way to wash a car is to put a thumb over the hose's spout so that only a fraction of the area is open. Why? Because this concentrates the water pressure, making the hose much more powerful. At work, the equivalent of this is concentrating your efforts on small areas where you know you can make a difference. By tackling one small challenge at a time, a narrow circle that slowly expands outward, we can relearn that our actions do have a direct effect on our outcomes that we are largely the masters of our own fates. With an increasingly 
internal locus of control and a greater confidence in our abilities, we can then expand our efforts outward. You can't sprint your way to a marathon. At first, some perennial high achievers have a difficult time with this concept. Three years ago, I worked with a very busy vice president who wanted to stop running herself ragged at work and start running marathons instead. She wasn't in the best shape of her life, as she hadn't been exercising at all because of her busy workload. But she believed that if she could manage a huge team across three continents, she could manage to run 26 miles. I'm no professional runner, but I feared her outsized ambition might get her in trouble. So I offered a few words of unsolicited advice. If you haven't run a marathon before, perhaps you should start slowly by running laps around the track of the gym, then building up from there. She didn't care for that idea. Running laps, she said? You don't understand. I want to run a marathon in a month. I'll need to start long runs immediately. She bought sleek shoes, high-tech gear, and began running fiercely every morning before work. By the end of the two weeks, she was racked by fatigue, crippled by shin splints, and frustrated that she hadn't managed to run more than five miles. So she gave up, 21 miles short of her goal. Unwilling to start with small circles, she had taken on too much at once and failed, and she didn't feel good about it. Unfortunately, when it comes to our work, we are often faced with unreasonable expectations, both those we set for ourselves and those others set for us. But when our goals are unrealizable, we run the risk of ending up like that overreaching marathoner, frustrated, dejected, and stuck. In today's results-obsessed workplace, it's no wonder we're impatient and overly ambitious. We want to be the top salesman, or earn the highest bonus, or have the biggest office, and we want it now. If we hire a new CEO, we're expected to be profitable the next quarter. If we hire a new head coach, we're expected to win the very next game. Our reality TV culture, which tells us that change isn't worth making or televising, unless it's immediate and Olympian in size, doesn't help either. We are taught to believe that total makeovers of house, body, and psyche are possible all in a 30-minute episode, minus commercials. But in the real world, this all-or-nothing mindset nearly guarantees failure. Furthermore, the feelings that result from frustrated attempts and overwhelming stressors hijack our brain, jump-starting that vicious and insidious cycle of helplessness that puts our goals even further out of reach. No matter what you may have heard from motivational speakers, coaches, and the like, reaching for the stars is a recipe for failure. In part one, I talked about pushing the limits of possibility. I do believe it's important to do this, just not all at once. That's why psychologists who specialize in goal-setting theory advocate setting goals of moderate difficulty. Not so easy that we don't have to try, but not so difficult that we get discouraged and give up. When the challenges we face are particularly challenging and the payoff remains far away, setting smaller, more manageable goals helps us build our confidence and celebrate our forward progress and keeps us committed to the task at hand. As Harvard Business School professor Peter Bregman advises, don't write a book, write a page. 
Don't expect to be a great manager in your first six months. Just try to set expectations well. No matter how small the initial circle is, it can lead to big returns. In the Talent Code, Daniel Coyle discusses how the strategy of finding and improving small problems has helped businesses flourish. The practice, often referred to as Kaizen, which is Japanese for continuous improvement, involves a focus on tiny incremental changes, improving efficiency on a production line, for instance, by shifting a trash bin one foot to the left. As Coyle points out, each tiny fix can add up to over a million tiny fixes each year. With Kaizen, in other words, companies can use the Zorro Circle to transform incremental change into mammoth results. Putting it all together. I once worked with a head copywriter of an advertising firm who found it difficult not to worry about the financial health of her company. How many clients, account services was landing, what kind of designs the art department was producing, whether or not her boss would start laying people off. Once she realized that each of these things was well outside her control and that worrying about them only led to heightened levels of stress, she was able to shift her focus towards fixing what was troubling her in her job, her workplace, and in many ways, her life. As with other clients, I had her make two lists, what she could control and what she couldn't. As often happens, she was surprised, I might say shocked, to see how much of her daily life fell into the former column. She managed a team of eight people, all talented copywriters who looked to her for instruction and guidance. She was in charge of leading the creative meetings that brainstormed ideas for each client. She may not have been a top executive, but every word the firm placed on a client's advertisement was in her hands. So for her first Zorro Circle, we set the following goal. To improve only the copy that she herself wrote. Recommitting herself to this manageable goal not only helped her focus her energies on something she could handle, the best part was that once her own performance improved, her circle of influence really did expand. The better her writing got, the harder her team worked to follow her example, and the team's improved performance soon raised the bar higher for other departments, which responded with renewed enthusiasm and creativity. Ironically, by recognizing that she had no control over the art department's designs, she indirectly influenced their designs after all. This gave her the confidence she needed to set her sights even higher, and pretty soon, her leadership was a great contributor to the company's overall performance. Pizza Boxes and Inboxes We often feel the most stress or the most emotionally hijacked when we stare into the void of our jam-packed to-do list, inbox, or desktop. One look at the towering pile of papers looming on our desk or the 300 unread emails and our feelings of control fly right out the window. As a freshman proctor, I advised more than my fair share of disorganized students who ranged from the typically untidy to the pathologically messy. During my second year on the job, the fire department reported one of my students, a tennis player named Joey, because his room was so full of old pizza boxes, empty bottles, 
scattered newspapers, and falling towers of textbooks that it couldn't pass a fire code inspection. Not only was his room an incinerator waiting to happen, the fire inspector feared Joey might have trouble escaping his own room in the case of an emergency, not to mention in the case of class. Some messes can be appreciated as organized chaos, but Joey's disorder had crossed over from quirky to debilitating. On the one hand, he wanted to get his life in order. On the other, the idea of tackling this massive disaster felt completely overwhelming. So we drew a Zorro circle, literally. I found a small patch of desk that had one stack of papers on it, and we traced a circle only a foot in diameter around it. Let's clear it off, I told Joey, and put each paper in its rightful place. Then instead of moving on to the rest of the desk right away, I told him to spend the next day defending the newly clean patch against any threats to order. Given Joey's usual habits, even that was a difficult task. He admitted as much the next day, but it was manageable. And once he had done it, he seemed genuinely pleased. So the next day, we chose another corner of his desk and applied the same rule. With each subsequent day came one more clutter-free circle, not to mention a greater sense of control and a strengthened commitment to the project. A mere two weeks later, the room was a spotless shadow of its former self. By establishing small circles of success and gradually expanding outward, Joey mastered the larger circle of his life. He was happy, and so was the fire department. A cluttered desk is fundamentally no different from a cluttered inbox, a problem that haunts too many modern workers. In both instances, the things of our lives have gained control over the functionality of our lives, and productivity suffers as a result. I had just given a talk to the employees of a large manufacturing company when one of the senior executives, Barry, invited me into his office. We weren't even inside the door when he began apologizing for the clutter. His office looked like a four-year-old had been playing paper tornado. But Barry had an even bigger problem on his mind, his email. He confessed that his inbox contained over 1,400 messages, which had piled up over the last two months while he worked on an all-consuming project. Now that the project was over, he knew he had to start addressing the pileup, but the mere thought of it seemed to strike fear into his heart. I studied the problem over his shoulder as he scrolled through all his unread messages. Three minutes later, he was barely through a quarter of them. I'll never dig out from under this mountain, he said. I might as well contract a computer virus that just destroys my whole computer. His stress level was so high at this point that every new email sent his body into a reflexive stress response. Just thinking about it made him feel nauseous. Not only did he want to avoid dealing with his email, he was so overwhelmed by the situation, he didn't feel like doing any work at all. I agreed to help. First, I told him, he needed to quell his growing anxiety. This inbox was not a saber-toothed tiger. It was a problem to be solved by planning and deliberate effort, not adrenaline-fueled panic. I could see he needed to talk about the problem, to put his feelings into words, in order to move the challenge from the emotional part of his brain 
to the problem-solving part. I reminded him that self-awareness was a swift antidote for emotional hijacking and recommended that he keep a notebook nearby to jot down his thoughts whenever the stress seemed to be rising to the surface. Then we drew the next circle. Dealing with two months' worth of unread emails was more than anyone could handle all at once, and Barry needed to see some progress right away. So I told him to forget everything that had been written before today and to respond only to each new email as it came in. After three or four days of tackling only new emails, once he started to feel in command of the situation, he could go back through the emails of the day before and address those. And so he could proceed, tacking on one extra day at a time, until he slowly worked his way back to the beginning. I also told him he couldn't spend more than an hour each day on this task. Without a time limit, even small incremental tasks can quickly escalate back into an overwhelming challenge with no end in sight. Three weeks later, I received an email from Barry. He proudly told me that if I responded immediately, I would be one of only five emails currently in his inbox. I was amazed. Furthermore, he had attached a picture of his spotless office, almost unrecognizable from the paper tornado I had first encountered. I wrote back that, assuming he hadn't subbed in a photo from an Office Depot ad, congratulations were in order. He had started with small, manageable steps forward, and now he was celebrating a giant success. Zorro goes to Gotham. As a native of the Southwest, Zorro never got to fight crime in New York City. But in a way, the same lessons that made Zorro a hero have helped make New York a safer city. In his book, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell recounts how city officials battled a rising crime rate in the 1980s and 90s. It was an overwhelming problem that no one quite knew how to fix. No matter how much money the city spent, no matter what the police did, they just couldn't seem to curb the dangerous trend. Finally, a small group of officials surprised everyone by adopting a radical new strategy based on the now famous broken windows theory. First devised in 1982 by sociologists James Q. Wilson and George Kelling, the theory explains how small acts of vandalism can quickly balloon into widespread crime. As the theory has it, one broken window in an abandoned building will soon multiply into many broken windows, which will lead to graffiti, then muggings, then car thefts, and so on. So the city officials decided to see whether this also worked in reverse. They started with the subway, immediately redirecting all their money and attention towards fixing the windows and cleaning up the graffiti, literally one car at a time. Understandably, city denizens were quite skeptical at first. As Gladwell explains, many subway advocates at the time told them not to worry about graffiti, to focus on the larger questions of crime and subway reliability, and it seemed like reasonable advice. Worrying about graffiti at a time when the entire system was close to collapse seems as pointless as scrubbing the decks of the Titanic as it headed toward the icebergs. But despite the cries of these detractors, the city officials stuck to their plan, slowly expanding their efforts to include more and more subway lines. 
until all of the trains in the city were clean. And as their circles started to expand, so did their results. Before long, subway crime of all kinds, from fair beating to armed robberies, had dropped rapidly. Then they expanded their circle by cleaning up graffiti in the city at large, and amazingly, they soon saw crime fall across the board. The point? Small successes can add up to major achievements. All it takes is drawing that first circle in the sand. Principle number six, the 22nd rule. How to turn bad habits into good ones by minimizing barriers to change. During one of the first trainings I ever gave on Wall Street, an impatient looking man stood up in the back of the room and shouted over the heads of his fellow analysts. Sean, I know you're from Harvard and everything, but isn't this all a huge waste of time? Isn't positive psychology just common sense? I felt my heart drop into my stomach. I hadn't yet been in the consulting business long enough to know that being publicly challenged like this comes with the territory. Still, I gathered my wits and did my best to address the inquisitor head on. I started by telling him that positive psychology draws on ideas from many esteemed sources ranging from ancient Greek philosophers to hallowed religious traditions to modern-day writers and thinkers. What's more, I went on, the principles and theories are then empirically tested and validated. So while some of the ideas espoused by positive psychology may very well be common sense, it's the science behind them that makes them unique and valuable. Clearly, though, this guy just wasn't buying it. He sat back down with a smug look, and I moved on to the next question, trying to accept the fact that you just can't win them all. Not until after the session, as I sat with several of the analysts over lunch, did the significance of this encounter reveal itself. Do you remember that guy who stood up during your talk? One of them asked. I said that I very much did. Another analyst leaned in close. That guy is the most unhappy person here. It's like a rain cloud follows over his head all the time. We can't put him on any teams because he's toxic. This was a turning point for me. Here was someone who had dismissed most of what I'd just been saying as too obvious to even discuss. Yet apparently, it wasn't obvious enough. I realized that he was the living embodiment of one of the greatest paradoxes of human behavior. Common sense is not common action. Would you be surprised if I told you that cigarettes are not a great source of vitamin C, or watching hours of reality television will not dramatically raise your IQ? Probably not. Similarly, we all know we should exercise, sleep eight hours, eat healthier, and be kind to others. But does this common knowledge make doing these things any easier? Of course not, because in life, Knowledge is only part of the battle. Without action, knowledge is often meaningless. As Aristotle put it, to be excellent, we cannot simply think or feel excellent. We must act excellently. Yet the action required to follow through on what we know is often the hardest part. That's why even though doctors know better than anyone the importance of exercise and diet, 44% of them are overweight. It's also why organizational gurus are often messy. Religious leaders can be blasphemous, 
and why even some positive psychologists aren't happy all of the time. I work with countless business people who complain that every Monday they make the same resolutions to stop procrastinating or quit smoking, to keep up with their inbox or start seeing their kids more. Yet every Friday, they find themselves wondering where the week went and what got in their way. The fact of the matter is, positive habits are hard to keep, no matter how commonsensical they might be. Like most people, I wage the same battle every January 1st, and by January 10th, I'm right back where I started. In fact, the New York Times reported that a whopping 80% of us break our New Year's resolutions. Even when we feel committed to positive change, sustaining it for any real length of time can seem nearly impossible. All too often, our pledges go unfulfilled, and today's treadmill becomes tomorrow's clothing rack. If our brains have the capacity to change, as we now know they do, why is changing our behavior so hard, and how can we make it easier? We are mere bundles of habits. During the years I spent working in Harvard's research lab, my workday started with a long ride up the elevator in William James Hall. The 15-story building has been home to Harvard's psychology department for decades, and it has housed more than its fair share of fascinating research. From B.F. Skinner and his famous box, to rambunctious bonobo monkeys and genetically engineered rodents, all humanely treated, which is more than we can say for the graduate students. The discoveries made by the building's namesake, though, might be its proudest heritage. While his brother Henry was gaining worldwide fame as a novelist, William James was carving out his own niche in history with his breakthroughs in the field of psychology. Born a few years into the second half of the 19th century, James applied his training in medicine, philosophy, and psychology to his lifelong study of the human mind. He taught Harvard's first experimental psychology class in 1875, and by 1890 had published Principles of Psychology, a 1,200-page tour de force that became the precursor to the modern psychology textbook. As I tell my students every year, think of the poor undergraduates who took William James' class before you complained too loudly about this week's reading assignment. In my mind, though, the greatest contribution William James made to the field of psychology is one that was a full century ahead of its time. Humans, James said, are biologically prone to habit, and it is because we are mere bundles of habits that we are able to automatically perform many of our daily tasks, from brushing our teeth first thing in the morning to setting the alarm before climbing into bed at night. It is precisely because habits are so automatic that we rarely stop and think about the enormous role they play in shaping our behavior, and in fact, our lives. After all, if we had to make a conscious choice about every little thing we did all day, we would likely be overwhelmed by breakfast. Take this morning as an example. I'm guessing that you didn't wake up, walk into your bathroom, look quizzically into the mirror, and think to yourself, should I put clothes on today? You didn't have to debate the pros and cons. You didn't have to call on your reserves of willpower. You just did it, the same way you probably combed your hair, gulped your coffee, locked your front door, and so on. And accepting any listeners who are exhibitionists, 
You did not have to remind yourself all day to keep these clothes on. It was not a struggle. It didn't deplete your reserves of energy or brain power. It was second nature, automatic, a habit. None of this seems particularly groundbreaking to us today. But what William James concluded was indeed crucial to our understanding of behavioral change. Given our natural tendency to act out of habit, James surmised, couldn't the key to sustaining positive change be to turn each desired action into a habit so that it would come automatically without much effort, thought, or choice? As the father of modern psychology so shrewdly advised, if we want to create lasting change, we should make our nervous system our ally instead of our enemy. Habits are like financial capital. Forming one today is an investment that will automatically give out returns for years to come. Daily Strokes of Effort Of course, this is where the phrase easier said than done has particular relevance. Good habits may be the answer, but how do we create them in the first place? William James had a prescription for that too. He called it daily strokes of effort. This is hardly revelatory, basically a reworking of the old dictum, practice makes perfect. Still, he was on to something far more sophisticated than he could have possibly have known at the time. A tendency to act, he wrote, only becomes effectively ingrained in us in proportion to the uninterrupted frequency with which the actions actually occur, and the brain grows to their use. In other words, habits form because our brain actually changes in response to frequent practice. In fact, James had this exactly right, though it would take a hundred years before neuroscientists could explain why. Remember how we learned that the brain structures and pathways are flexible and elastic? Well, it turns out that as we progress through our days learning new facts, completing new tasks, and having new conversations, our brains are constantly changing and rewiring to reflect these experiences. With apologies to the delicate nuances of neuroscience, here is what is happening in a nutshell. Within our brains are billions upon billions of neurons, interconnected in every which way to form a complex set of neural pathways. Electrical currents travel down these pathways from neuron to neuron, delivering the messages that make up our every thought and action. The more we perform a particular action, the more connections form between the corresponding neurons. This is the origin of the common phrase, cells that fire together, wire together. The stronger this link, the faster the message can travel down the pathway. This is what makes the behavior seem second nature or automatic. This is also how we become skilled at an activity with practice. For instance, the first time you try to juggle, the neural pathways involved are unused, and so the message travels slowly. The more time you spend juggling, the more these pathways get reinforced, so that on the eighth day of practice, the electrical currents are firing at a much more rapid pace. This is when you'll notice that juggling becomes easier, requires less concentration, and that you can do it faster. Eventually, you can be listening to music, chewing gum, and having a conversation with someone else, all while those three oranges are flying through the air. Juggling has become automatic, a habit cemented in your brain by a solid new 
network of neural pathways. Given all that William James had right so many years ago, we should forgive him the one thing he got wrong. He believed, as did most scientists of his day, that this ability to create lasting brain change was exclusive to the young, essentially the you-can't-teach-an-old-dog-new-tricks school of thought. Thankfully, that's not the case. As you'll recall from the beginning of this program, scientists now know that the brain remains plastic and malleable well past the age of 20, through even our most senior years. That means that we have the power to create new habits and then reap the benefits, whether we're 22 or 72. The guitar that wouldn't play itself. When I first learned about the science behind this phenomenon, I was eager to test it out. Could I really rewire my brain and create a new life habit by doing the same thing each day for a few weeks? It was time for an experiment, and the easiest way to do one was to make myself the subject. I decided to take up the guitar once again, since I already owned one and knew that I enjoyed playing it, because common wisdom had long proposed that it takes 21 days to make a habit, I decided to make a spreadsheet with 21 columns, tape it to my wall, and check off each day I played. By the end of the three weeks, I felt confident that A, I would have a grid full of 21 check marks. B, daily guitar playing would have become an automatic established part of my life. C, my playing would improve. And D, I would be happier for it. Three weeks later, I pulled the grid down in disgust. Staring up at four check marks, followed by a whole lot of empty boxes, was more discouragement and embarrassment than I needed. I had failed my own experiment, and worse, I was no closer to telling potential dates that I was a musician. Worse still, I was shocked, depressed even, at how quick I had been to give up. A positive psychologist should be better at following his own advice. Of course, the feelings of failure only deepen when you realize you're now a depressed positive psychologist. The guitar was still sitting in the closet, a mere 20 seconds away, but I couldn't make myself take it out and play it. What had gone wrong? It turns out that the telling words here are make myself. Without realizing it, I had been fighting the wrong battle, one I was bound to lose unless I changed my strategy. Why willpower is not the way. Tal Ben Shahar loves to tell what he calls the story of the chocolate cake. Back home in Israel, Tal's mother was famous for her delicious chocolate cake. One afternoon, when Tal and his friends arrived home from school, she pulled one out of the oven and offered everyone a slice. Tal refused, citing his strict training regimen for the National Squash Championships. So he sat and watched enviously as his friends devoured their mouth-watering snack. Then they all went back to their homework. Hours later, Tall returned to the fridge to examine the cake. It still looked delicious, but no, he thought, he would stay strong. Another hour passed, another check on the cake. Yep, still there. Soon, it was all he could think about. Finally, in the middle of the night, when everyone else was sleeping, Tall crept down to the kitchen and devoured the entire remaining cake, every last bite. Anyone who has ever tried to maintain a strict diet has experienced this failure of willpower. 
We deny and deny ourselves until all of a sudden we can't take it anymore and the floodgates break. Five successful days of carrot sticks and tofu wedges are followed by a pizza binge or a feast fit for five. As any dietitian will tell you, relying on willpower to completely avoid unhealthy food nearly guarantees relapse. That's why people who crash diet are more likely to regain weight than people who eat healthily but don't deny themselves, and why only 20% of the dieters are able to keep off the lost weight for any extended length of time. The more we attempt to stay strong, the harder we eventually fall, usually right into a tub of Ben & Jerry's. The point is that whether it's a strict diet, a New Year's resolution, or an attempt at daily guitar practice, the reason so many of us have trouble sustaining change is because we try to rely on willpower. We think we can go from zero to 60 in an instant, changing or overturning ingrained life habits through the sheer force of will. Tall thought telling himself he was on a diet would be enough to keep him away from his mother's chocolate cake. I thought telling myself to follow some spreadsheet would discipline me enough to practice the guitar. Well, that worked for four days. Then I went back to regularly scheduled programming. Willpower gets a workout. The reason willpower is so ineffective at sustaining change is the more we use it, the more worn out it gets. You may know this intuitively, but it took renowned researcher Roy Baumeister hundreds of chocolate chip cookies and a lot of disgruntled research subjects to prove it as fact. In one of many studies on the subject of willpower, Baumeister and his colleagues invited college students into their lab, instructing them not to eat anything for at least three hours prior to the experiment. Then he split them into three groups. Group one was given a plate of chocolate chip cookies, which they were told not to eat, as well as a healthy plate of radishes, which they were welcome to eat to their heart's content. Group two was presented with the same two plates of cookies and radishes, but they were told they could eat off whichever plate they liked. Group three was given no food at all. After enduring these situations for a significant length of time, the three groups were then given a set of simple geometric puzzles to solve. Let me emphasize the word simple. In truth, this is another one of psychology's favorite tools, the unsolvable puzzle. As I learned the hard way through my Help the Elderly experience, Psychology researchers love using impossible games to see how long participants will persevere at a task. In this case, individuals in group two and three long outlasted those in group one, who quickly threw up their hands in defeat. Why? Because the students who had to use every ounce of their willpower to avoid eating the enticing chocolate chip cookies didn't have the willpower or mental energy left to struggle with a complex puzzle. Even though avoiding cookies and persisting on a puzzle are seemingly completely unrelated. Studies have replicated this finding with a huge range of tasks designed to tap willpower. In one, people were asked to watch a humorous film and suppress their laughter, then solve difficult anagrams. In another, 
they were instructed to write about a day in the life of an obese person without using any stereotypes. Then we're told to suppress a specific thought. Don't think about a white bear. And indeed, no matter what the tasks were, they always performed significantly worse on the second than the first. If they had resisted laughter for 10 minutes, they couldn't persist on an anagram. If they had suppressed stereotypes, they couldn't avoid thinking about a white bear, and so on. The point of these experiments was to show that no matter how unrelated the tasks were, they all seemed to be tapping the same fuel source. As the researchers wrote, many widely different forms of self-control draw on a common resource or self-control strength, which is quite limited and hence can be depleted readily. Put another way, our willpower weakens the more we use it. Unfortunately, we face a steady stream of tasks that deplete our willpower every single day. Whether it's avoiding the dessert table at the company lunch, staying focused on a computer spreadsheet for hours on end, or sitting still through a three-hour meeting, our willpower is consistently being put to the test. So it's no wonder, really, that we so easily give in to our old habits, to the easiest and most comfortable path as we progress through the day. This invisible pull towards the path of least resistance can dictate more of our lives than we realize, creating an impassable barrier to change and positive growth. The Path of Least Resistance As Kathy sits tethered to her desk on Tuesday, she daydreams about the upcoming Saturday and all its possibilities. She wants to go biking on the trail by her house, join in a pickup soccer game at the local park, and see that Matisse exhibit at the museum. She might even dive into that pile of books she has been wanting to read. Like all of us, Kathy has a number of hobbies and activities that engage her interests and strengths, energize her days, and make her happy. And yet, when her free Saturday actually does roll around, where does she end up? Conspicuously not on her bike, or at the soccer field, and certainly not at that art exhibit everybody was raving about. It's 20 minutes away. Her remote control, on the other hand, is within very easy reach, and Bravo happens to be airing a Top Chef marathon. Four hours later, Kathy has sunk deeper and deeper into the couch, unable to shake a listless sense of disappointment. She had better plans for the afternoon, and she wonders what happened to them. What happened to Kathy was something that happens to all of us at one time or another. Inactivity is simply the easiest option. Unfortunately, we don't enjoy it nearly as much as we think we do. In general, Americans actually find free time more difficult to enjoy than work. If that sounds ridiculous, consider this. For the most part, our jobs require us to use our skills, engage our minds, and pursue our goals. All things have been shown to contribute to happiness. Of course, leisure activities can do this too, but because they're not required of us, because there is no leisure boss leaning over our shoulder on Sunday mornings, telling us we better be at the art museum by 9 a.m. sharp, we often find it difficult to muster the energy necessary to kickstart them. So we follow the path of least resistance, and that path 
inevitably leads us to the couch and the television. And because we are mere bundles of habit, the more often we succumb to this path, the more difficult it becomes to change directions. Unfortunately, though these types of passive leisure, like watching TV and trolling around on Facebook, might be easier and more convenient than biking or looking at art or playing soccer, they don't offer the same rewards. Studies show that these activities are enjoyable and engaging for only about 30 minutes. Then they start sapping our energy, creating what psychologists call psychic entropy, that listless, apathetic feeling Kathy experienced. On the other hand, active leisure, like hobbies, games, and sports, enhance our concentration, engagement, motivation, and sense of enjoyment. Studies have found that American teenagers are two and a half times more likely to experience elevated enjoyment when engaged in a hobby than when watching television and three times more likely when playing a sport. And yet here's the paradox. These same teenagers spend four times as many hours watching TV as they do engaging in sports or hobbies. So what gives? Or as psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi put it more eloquently, why would we spend four times more time doing something that has less than half the chance of making us feel good? The answer is that we are drawn powerfully, magnetically, to those things that are easy, convenient, and habitual. And it is incredibly difficult to overcome this inertia. Active leisure is more enjoyable, but it almost always requires more initial effort. Getting the bike out of the garage, driving to the museum, tuning the guitar, and so on. Csikszentmihalyi calls this activation energy. In physics, activation energy is the initial spark needed to catalyze a reaction. The same energy, both physical and mental, is needed of people to overcome inertia and kickstart a positive habit. Otherwise, human nature takes us down the path of least resistance time and time again. An offer you can't refuse. As you might imagine, advertisers and marketers make their living on the path of least resistance. Ever bought something with a mail-in rebate? Did you actually mail it in? Didn't think so. That's why companies offer them. This is also why magazines send us a free five-week subscription, then automatically start deducting money from our account in the sixth week. Sure, we can refuse the offer, as long as we mail back that little card saying, no thank you, I would like to cancel my subscription. Unfortunately, that requires just too much activation energy, and the gimmick pays off for the magazine. In the world of marketing, the term is opt-out, a genius invention, really, that takes supreme advantage of human psychology. Opt-out marketing is when people are added to mailing lists without ever consciously consenting so that if they want to stop the barrage of promotional emails, they must actively unsubscribe themselves. To unsubscribe requires finding the tiny link at the bottom of the email, then clicking through one or two more websites before finally arriving at the desired destination. The company is betting, often successfully, that this process involves far more energy and effort than most people are willing to expend. Martin Lindstrom, 
a marketing expert who uses neuroscience to explore the psychology of our consumer habits, points out that phone companies are special benefactors of this strategy. There is almost always a better monthly plan available than the one the phone comes with, but we usually stick with the default because it's just too difficult to do the research and then even more difficult to switch plans. One especially fascinating study Lindstrom did on the famous Nokia ringtone, perhaps the most ubiquitous four-note sound in the world, revealed the powerful pull that the path of least resistance has on us. By using fMRI technology to analyze people's brains during exposure to the sound, he found a nearly universal negative emotional response. And yet, amazingly, 80 million Nokia users have it as their ringtone. Why would they keep the ring that grates on their ears and sends them into an emotional tailspin every time they get a call? Because it's the default option. And whether we're aware of it or not, default options are everywhere, shaping our choices and our behavior in all areas of our lives. At the grocery store, we buy more food off shelves that directly meet our eye and less off those that require us to look up or kneel down. Every retailer knows this, and you can be sure they exploit it by putting the most expensive brands at eye level. Online advertisers now conduct market research with sophisticated eye-tracking machines determined to develop the perfect place for a banner ad on a website, the place that we will see without expending any additional energy. In clothing stores, too, everything is set up to capitalize on our gravitation to the default path. As Lindstrom points out, we're more likely to buy an item of clothing if we can give it a sensory test run by touching the fabric. So the most expensive clothes are set at the perfect height for such an experience. Try this out the next time you enter a store. When your hands are at your side, each table of clothes sits almost exactly at your fingertips, begging to be grabbed. In the workplace, the path of least resistance is especially maladaptive, luring us into a whole host of bad habits that breed procrastination and undercut productivity. I often encounter this problem in my own professional life, but I had to travel all the way to Hong Kong for the gravity of the situation to really hit home. The Path to Distraction It was the second day of the training session I was giving at a large technology company in Hong Kong, a city so electric it makes Times Square look like Topeka. I had found some time to work privately with Ted, one of the lead managers on the marketing team, who was struggling to keep up with his workload. No matter how much he worked, he always felt behind, and he had to keep extending his hours to keep up with it all. I don't do anything except work now, Ted confessed, and it's still not enough. I told him that he wasn't alone. I hear the same story, almost word for word, no matter what country I'm in or who I'm talking with. Regardless of our job description, we never seem to have enough time to get everything done. Eight-hour workdays turn into 12- and 14-hour ones, and we still feel behind. How can this be? Why do we have so much trouble being productive? After listening to Ted describe, from start to finish, how he went about his day, two important answers suddenly clicked into place. One, Ted was working all the time. And two, Ted was almost never working. 
When Ted arrives at 7 a.m., the first thing he does is open his internet browser. His homepage is CNN, so he starts reading up on the day's breaking news. His intent is to scan the major headlines and move on, but invariably, he ends up clicking through the other links that catch his eye. Then, without even thinking about it, he opens two different websites where he checks his stocks and investments to see how they fared overnight. Next, he checks his email, which will continue to stay open throughout the day, alerting him every time he receives new messages. Once he wades through his inbox, clicks on a couple more links and attachments, and fires back a few responses, he's ready to get to work. Sort of. Turns out, Ted generally gets about 30 minutes of real work done before he takes a quick coffee break. Then he sits back at the computer, where he can't help but notice that his homepage has a whole new batch of headlines to scan. And what's this? 10 new emails? He better read them. Then he checks his stocks again, just to be sure financial Armageddon hasn't kicked in. Finally, Ted refocuses and gets into a groove, writing a new marketing plan, which lasts for about 10 minutes, until his concentration is broken again by the arrival of a new email. To quote Kurt Vonnegut, and so it goes. Does this sound at all familiar? After a few quick calculations, we concluded that Ted probably checks his stocks three times an hour, his email five times an hour, and news websites about once an hour. And that's actually quite typical. The American Management Association reports that employees spend an average of 107 minutes on email a day. A group of London workers I spoke with admitted that they check stocks about four or five times an hour. That's 35 times a day. And I suspect that most office workers tallied up all the minutes they spent each day on blogs, social networking sites, Amazon.com, and so forth. It would paint a very alarming picture indeed. No wonder it's so hard to get anything done. And that's not even the worst of it. The actual time we give to these distractions is part of the problem, but the larger issue is that our attention hits a wall each time we stray. Research shows that the average employee gets interrupted from their work every 11 minutes, and on each occasion experiences a loss of concentration and flow that takes almost as many minutes to recover from. Yet in today's world, it's just too easy for us to be tempted. As a New York Times article put it, Distracting oneself used to consist of sharpening a half dozen pencils or lighting a cigarette. Today, there is a universe of diversions to buy, hear, watch, and forward, which makes focusing on a task all the more challenging. As Ted and I worked to find ways to minimize the distractions, I had an epiphany. It's not the sheer number and volume of distractions that get us into trouble. It's the ease of access to them. Think about it. If you want to check your stocks, do you have to sit there and watch a stock ticker run through the whole alphabet? Of course not. You can program a website to update you on the ones you're interested in and give you regular updates. If you want to read the latest political news or some commentary on the hot new movie, do you have to troll through all the dozens of sites and blogs to find one on the desired subject? No way. You can set up an RSS feed for your favorite blog topics and have them delivered right to your inbox. Similarly, you can get all your favorite sports news, celebrity gossip, 
restaurant reviews, and everything else emailed right to you. Technology may make it easier for us to save time, but it also makes it a whole lot easier for us to waste it. In short, distraction, always just one click away, has become the path of least resistance. Redirecting the path, the 22nd rule. In allowing himself to be swept along this path, Ted had become ensnared in a series of very bad habits. In his case, these all involved procrastination, which got me thinking. Could the psychological mechanisms that were derailing Ted's productivity also explain why I had failed to follow my regimen of guitar playing? Had the path of least resistance led me astray? I thought back to that initial experiment. I had kept my guitar tucked away in a closet, out of sight and out of reach. It wasn't far out of the way, of course. My apartment isn't that big. But just those 20 seconds of extra effort it took me to walk to the closet and pull out the guitar had proved to be a major deterrent. I had tried to overcome this barrier with willpower, but after only four days, my reserves were completely dried up. If I couldn't use self-control to ingrain the habit, at least not for an extended period, I now wondered, what if I could eliminate the amount of activation energy it took to get started? Clearly, it was a time for another experiment. I took the guitar out of the closet, bought a $2 guitar stand, and set it up in the middle of my living room. Nothing had changed, except that now, instead of being 20 seconds away, the guitar was in immediate reach. Three weeks later, I looked up at the habit grid with 21 proud check marks. What I had done here, essentially, was put the desired behavior on the path of least resistance. So it actually took less energy and effort to pick up and practice the guitar than to avoid it. I like to refer to this as the 20-second rule. Because lowering the barrier to change by just 20 seconds was all it took to help me form a new life habit. In truth, it often takes more than 20 seconds to make a difference, and sometimes it can take much less. But the strategy itself is universally applicable. Lower the activation energy for habits you want to adopt and raise it for habits you want to avoid. The more we can lower or even eliminate the activation energy for our desired actions, the more we enhance our ability to jumpstart positive change. Sirens and Slurpees. This is not a new idea, but it is a really good one. Remember the scene from Homer's Odyssey where Odysseus tries to guide his ship past the dangerous sirens? Those beauties with voices so seductive they could lure any man to certain death? Odysseus knows he will be powerless to resist their call, so he tells his men to tie him to the ship's mast, ensuring that they will sail safely by. Because he knows willpower will fail him, he puts enough activation energy between him and the path of temptation. More than 2,000 years later, and in only a slightly different cultural context, the main character in the movie Confessions of a Shopaholic freezes her credit cards and blocks of ice to physically stop herself from an impulsive buy. Sounds silly, but putting 10 minutes of hair drying and chiseling in between her and her American Express was enough to stall her troubling habit. 
Sure, this may be an exaggeration. From Hollywood, how surprising. But financial advisors actually do recommend that people who can't resist the siren song of a sale leave their credit cards at home in a desk drawer, safely out of reach. Luckily, shopping isn't one of my big weaknesses, but watching too much television used to be. According to a quick Google search, the average American watches five to seven hours of television a day. At one point, I was watching about three hours a day, which was, of course, decreasing my productivity and time with my real-life friends. I wanted to watch less television, but every time I'd come home from work, I would be tired from teaching, and it was so easy to sit down on the couch and press the on button on the remote control. So I decided to do another experiment on myself. This time, I determined to play the same trick my brain had played upon me when I didn't play the guitar. I took the batteries out of the remote control, took my stopwatch, and walked the batteries exactly 20 seconds away and left them in a drawer in my bedroom. Would that be enough to cure me of my TV habit? The next few nights, when I got home from work, I plopped down on the couch and pressed the on button on the remote, usually repeatedly, forgetting that I had moved the batteries. Then, frustrated, I thought to myself, I hate that I do these experiments. But sure enough, the energy and effort required to retrieve the batteries, or even to walk across the room and turn the TV on manually, was enough to do the trick. Soon I found myself reaching for a book I had purposefully placed on the couch, or the guitar that now sat on a stand right by the couch, or even the laptop, now positioned in easy reach, on which I was writing this manuscript. As the days passed, the urge to watch TV waned, and the new activities became more habitual. Eventually, I even found myself doing things that required far more activation than retrieving batteries, like going out to play pickup basketball or meeting friends for dinner. And I felt much more energized, productive, and happy for it. By adding 20 seconds to my day, I gained back three hours. The 20-second rule is an especially crucial ally in our quest for healthier eating habits. Researchers have found that they can cut cafeteria ice cream consumption in half by simply closing the lid of an ice cream cooler. And that when people are required to wait in another separate line to purchase chips and candy, far fewer will do so. In essence, the more effort it takes us to obtain unhealthy food, the less we'll eat of it, and vice versa. This is why nutritionists recommend that we prepare healthy snacks in advance so that we can simply pull them out of the refrigerator, and why they recommend that when we do eat junk food, we take out a small portion, then put the rest of the bag away, well out of reach. In his book, Mindless Eating, Brian Wansink writes about a friend of his who couldn't resist stopping at a 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee on his way home from work each day. Finally, he decided that if he couldn't keep his car from driving to 7-Eleven, he would take a different route home, zigzagging around the temptation. Our best weapon in the battle against bad habits, be they Slurpees, Seinfeld reruns, or distractions at work, is simply to make it harder for ourselves to succumb to them. Clever minds have come up with some creative ways to put barriers between ourselves and our vices. For instance, in an increasing number of U.S. states, compulsive gamblers can request that the government 
put them on a list that actually makes it illegal for them to enter casinos or collect any gambling earnings. Some cell phone carriers offer a service to prevent imbibers from drunk dialing by blocking all outgoing calls, except 911, after a certain hour on weekends. The Google email client Gmail offers an amusing but effective option that requires someone to solve a series of math problems before they can send an email late at night, thereby protecting employees who have downed a bottle of wine from emailing their bosses a misspelled list of grievances. Governments, too, have found a way to use the 20-second rule in service of the greater public good. For example, polls show that the number of people willing to be organ donors is quite high, but that most are deterred by the long process of filling out the right forms to do so. In response, some countries have switched to an opt-out program, which automatically enrolls all citizens as donors. Anyone is free to withdraw their name, of course, but when staying on the list becomes the default option, most people will do so. This really works. When Spain switched to opt-out, the number of donated organs immediately doubled. Before I stumbled upon the 20-second rule, I'm not sure I could have done much more to help Ted in Hong Kong than diagnose his paradoxical problem. He was working almost all the time, yet almost never working. But once I realized why he was having so much trouble staying focused, I decided it was time to see how this strategy could take office distractions off the path of least resistance. Save time by adding time. The first step is a seemingly counterintuitive one. Disable many of the shortcuts that were originally designed to save time at the office. For example, I encouraged Ted to keep his email program closed while he worked, so it would no longer send jarring alerts whenever he received new mail. Anytime he wanted to check email, he'd have to actively open the program and wait for it to load. While this reduced involuntary interruptions, it was still too easy for him to click on the little Outlook icon whenever his mind wandered. So to protect against habitual checking, we made it even more difficult. We disabled the automatic login and password for the account, took the shortcut off the computer desktop, then hid the application icon in an empty folder, buried in another empty folder, buried in another empty folder. Essentially, we created the electronic version of Russian stacking dolls. As he told me one day at the office, only half-jokingly, it was now a total pain in the ass to check his email. Now we're getting somewhere, I replied. We did the same thing for his other distractions, disabling his stock widget, changing his homepage from CNN to a blank search page, and even turning off his computer's ability to process cookies so it couldn't remember the stocks and websites he usually checked. Every additional button he was required to click, even every additional address he was required to type into a web browser, raised the barrier to procrastination and improved his chances of remaining on task. I pointed out that he still had complete freedom to do what he wanted. Just like in an opt-out program, his choice had not been taken away at all. The only thing that had changed was the default, which was now set to productivity instead of to distraction. That first day in Hong Kong, Ted was not only skeptical, but a little annoyed with me. 
it seemed to him and to the other executives on whom I had inflicted similar miseries that I was only making their busy lives more difficult. Who is I to disable their cookies? I don't even know what cookies are. But a few days later, once they realized how much more work they were getting done, and in less time, they had come around. Sleep in your gym clothes. The 22nd rule isn't just about altering the time it takes to do things. Limiting the choices we have to make can also help lower the barrier to positive change. You may recall how Roy Baumeister's willpower studies showed that self-control is a limited resource that gets weakened with overuse. Well, those same researchers have discovered that too much choice similarly saps our resources. Their studies showed that with every additional choice people are asked to make, their physical stamina, ability to perform numerical calculations, persistence in the face of failure, and overall focus drop dramatically. And these don't have to be difficult decisions either. The questions are more chocolate or vanilla than they are Sophie's choice. Yet every one of these innocuous choices depletes our energy a little further until we just don't have enough to continue with the positive habit we're trying to adopt. One of the life habits I wanted to create was exercising in the morning. I knew from numerous research studies that exercise in the morning raises your performance on cognitive tasks and gives your brain a win to start a cascade effect of positive emotions. But information is not transformation. Because every morning I would wake up and ask myself, do I want to exercise? And my brain would reply, no, I do not. If you've ever tried to start up the habit of early morning exercise, you have probably encountered how easy it is to get derailed by too much choice. Each morning, after the alarm clock sounds, the inner monologue goes something like this. Should I hit the snooze button or get up immediately? What should I wear to work out this morning? Should I go for a run or go to the gym? Should I go to the nearby gym that's more crowded or the quieter gym that's slightly farther away? What kind of cardio should I do when I get there? Should I lift weights? Should I go to kickboxing class or maybe yoga? And by that point, you're so exhausted by all the options, you've fallen back asleep. At least, that's what would happen to me. So I decided to decrease the number of choices I would have to make in order to get myself to the gym. Each night before I went to sleep, I wrote out a plan for where I would exercise in the morning and what parts of my body I would focus on. Then I put my sneakers right by my bed. Finally, and most important, I just went to sleep in my gym clothes. And my mom wonders why I'm not married yet. But the clothes were clean, and I had essentially decreased the activation energy enough so that when I woke up the next morning, all I had to do was roll off my bed, put my feet, which already had socks on them, into my shoes, and I was out the door. The decisions that seemed too daunting in my groggy morning state had been decided for me ahead of time, and it worked. Eliminating the choices and reducing the activation energy made getting up and going to the gym the default mode. As a result, once I ingrained a lifetime positive habit of morning exercise, I now don't have to sleep in my gym clothes anymore. Subsequently, in talking to athletes and non-athletes worldwide, I hear the same from both. Something weird happens in the human brain 
when you put your athletic shoes on. You start to think it is easier to just go work out now than to take all this stuff back off again. In reality, it's easier to take off the shoes, but your brain, once it has tipped toward a habit, will naturally keep rolling in that direction, following the path of perceived least resistance. This isn't just about getting yourself to exercise. Think of the positive changes you want to make at your job and figure out what it would mean to just get your shoes on at work. The less energy it takes to kickstart a positive habit, the more likely that habit will stick. Set rules of engagement. Whether you're trying to change your habits at work or at home, the key to reducing choice is setting and following a few simple rules. Psychologists call these kinds of rules second-order decisions because they are essentially decisions about when to make decisions, like deciding ahead of time when, where, and how I was going to work out in the morning. Of course, this technique isn't just good for decisions like whether to use the treadmill or Stairmaster. In his brilliant book, The Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz explains how setting rules in advance can free us from the constant barrage of willpower-depleting choices that make a real difference in our lives. If we make a rule to never drive a car when we've had more than one drink, for example, we eliminate the stress and uncertainty of trying to make a judgment call every time we aren't sure if we're too drunk to drive, which probably means we are. At work, setting rules to reduce the volume of choice can be incredibly effective. For example, if we set rules to only check our email once per hour or to only have one coffee break per morning, we are less likely to succumb in the moment, which helps these rules to become habits we stick to by default. Rules are especially helpful during the first few days of a behavior-changing venture, when it's easier to stray off course. Gradually, as the desired action becomes more habitual, we can become more flexible. For instance, you won't often hear an experienced chef say, I make it a rule to always follow the recipe exactly as it is, because some of the best dishes are made through creative experimentation in the kitchen. But for a beginning cook like me, this rule is entirely necessary. Since I don't know enough about cooking to know how to be spontaneous, straying from the rules could lead to disaster, or to a dozen tuna fish brownies. I once worked with an account executive named Joseph, who needed rules at work the same way I needed rules in the kitchen. He was a pretty reserved, somber individual. In dress and manner, he reminded me of one of those 17th century New England preachers. That was just on the surface, though. Deep down, Joseph desperately wanted to capitalize on the happiness advantage by spreading positivity to his team. But acting upbeat and openly encouraging his employees just didn't come naturally to him. Each morning, he would set out to be more positive, but always found himself quickly falling back into his default mode. He admitted to me that when he attempted positive interaction during his team meetings, he would get overwhelmed by choices like, what should I say that's encouraging? To whom? When should I say it? How much praise should I give? Paralyzed by indecision, he'd end up saying nothing at all. 
and the meeting would end with Joseph once again silently lamenting another missed opportunity. All these decisions had required too much activation energy. We needed to set some rules to make this easier. The first rule was this. Every day, before he walked through the conference room doors, he had to think of one employee he could thank for something. Then the second rule was, before he started the meeting and anything else could get in the way, he had to publicly thank that person. A simple sentence would do, and then he could move on to the rest of the meeting as planned, without the myriad choices hanging over his head. A month later, I happened to be back at the company for a training session when I ran into Joseph in the hallway. No one would have described him as a bulliant, but he certainly appeared happier and warmer than before. He told me that our daily rule had made it far easier for him to follow through on his goal, and he was enjoying the benefits of increased positivity in the workplace. In fact, two weeks into his new ritual, he found himself wanting to say a second positive comment to someone later on in the meeting, even though he had already reached his goal. Now he could relax the rules, confident the new habit was firmly in place. It's all in the shoes. This book is full of ways we can capitalize on the happiness advantage, but without actually putting those strategies into action, they remain useless, like a set of expensive tools that sit locked behind a glass case. The key to their use, to permanent positive change, is to create habits that automatically pay dividends without continued concerted effort or extensive reserves of willpower. The key to creating these habits is ritual, repeated practice, until the actions become ingrained in your brain's neural chemistry. And the key to daily practice is to put your desired actions as close to the path of least resistance as humanly possible. Identify the activation energy, the time, the choices, the mental and physical effort they require, and then reduce it. If you can cut the activation energy for those habits that lead to success, even by as little as 20 seconds at a time, it won't be long before you start reaping their benefits. The first step, metaphorically, and sometimes literally, is just to get your shoes on. Principle number seven, social investment. Why social support is your single greatest asset. I was 18 years old, lost in a burning building, and blind. As I fumbled through the flames, it occurred to me, maybe I shouldn't have volunteered for this. It was my senior year of high school, and I was coming to the tail end of my 90 hours of volunteer firefighting training in my hometown of Waco, Texas. The final test before completing the training was called the fire maze, an exercise in which the veteran firefighters would put us newbies through our first real-life full-scale fire. Weighed down with flame-repellent suits, oxygen tanks, and dread, we were led to an empty farm silo called the smoke tank. The firefighters opened the metal door to reveal a giant room filled with an intricate wooden maze, with walls 10 feet high and combustibles like oil tires and pieces of wood littering the floor. Before we could even have time to take in the whole scene, the veteran firefighters put torches to the wood and the entire maze lit up in flames. 
The Texas sun had already heated the day to nearly 100 degrees, but that seemed cool compared to the furnace blast now racing through the building. We picked up our masks, only to find that they had been completely covered in black paint. To replicate how hard it is to see in a real fire, our instructor said. I looked out at the growing blaze in front of us. This fake fire seemed plenty real to me. I put on my mask. I couldn't see a thing. The firefighters yelled our instructions over the roar of the flames. There is a dummy trapped in the middle of the maze. Your goal is to rescue him as quickly as possible. In a real fire, in a strange home, it is exceedingly easy to get lost and disoriented. The only way to avoid this is to keep in constant contact with the wall. You will enter the building in teams of two, holding on to one another. So one of you can hold on to the wall while the other sweeps the floor for the dummy. This task would be nearly impossible alone, but working with a partner, it could be done fairly easily. The firefighters assured us that the whole task should take only seven to 10 minutes, but that we had a whole hour of oxygen in our tanks just in case. An alarm bell would alert us when we were down to our final five minutes of air, giving us plenty of time to exit safely. Finally, the firefighters reminded us again of our human lifelines, our partners. In a fire, it might seem counterintuitive to hold on to your teammate, but that was the best way of getting out alive. The veterans flung open the door and we crawled headfirst into the inferno. I started gulping oxygen and I could feel my partner grip my jacket at the wrist and hear him breathing just as hard. We started timidly feeling our way through the smoke. He went first, keeping a hand on the wall, while I held on to him with one hand and used the other to feel along the floor for the dummy. About 10 minutes into the maze, everything seemed to be going fine, except for the fact that we couldn't see and felt moments away from heat stroke. But we still hadn't found the dummy. That's when I heard the bell. Surrounded by flames and smoke, blind and crawling around on my knees, I tried to make sense of what was happening. Why was the alarm on my partner's air tank going off? There had to be at least 45 minutes of oxygen left, yet the bell meant he had only five minutes of air to go. Must be some kind of mistake, I thought. Then my bell went off. Veteran firefighters would have remained calm. We panicked. Our ability to reason vanished. I unthinkingly let go of my partner, and then he let go of the wall, which meant the worst. We were both alone, and we had both lost the way back out. Disoriented and frightened, we flailed blindly in opposite directions, groping the air and calling each other's name. But I couldn't hear him over the roar of the fire and was sure he couldn't hear me either. As the minutes ticked by, I began to feel increasingly helpless and scared. I crawled around frantically, sure that my oxygen supply was rapidly running out. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, I felt the heat recede as a pair of strong arms dragged me out of the maze into safety. As I gulped in the fresh air, the veterans revealed several things. First, everything that had gone wrong had been part of the training. The bells on the tanks were set to go off early, raising the false alarm that we were out of air. Second, when the firefighters went in after us, they had found me crawling around in circles at a dead end, and my partner, 20 feet away, equally lost 
and doing more or less the same thing. Third, there had been no dummy. As the firefighters like to say at the end of training every year, the only dummies in the fire are the newbies, and they always have to be saved. At the time, I remember thinking that this was a particularly cruel trick. But years later, I'm impressed at how memorably the fire maze training instilled in me the lesson that is at the heart of Principle 7, that when we encounter an unexpected challenge or threat, the only way to save ourselves is to hold on tight to the people around us and not let go. The mistake we make. This principle is just as true in the modern workplace as it is in the fiery smoke tank. In the midst of challenges and stress at work, nothing is more crucial to our success than holding on to the people around us. Yet when the alarm bells at work go off, all too often we become blind to this reality and try to go it alone. And as a result, we end up like I did, circling helplessly at some dead-end corner until we run out of air. I've seen too many businessmen and women fall prey to this miscalculation. I can remember hearing the trading bell ring at the end of one particularly vicious day in November of 2008. The Dow was way down. Countless sums of money had been lost. I watched as swarms of traders loosened their ties and walked dejectedly off the floor. But what struck me was that they didn't retreat to the stronghold of their teams as they normally did after a day of trading. They all walked off silent and alone. These were smart, capable people with MBAs from some of the world's leading institutions. Yet in a situation that required them to be firing on all cylinders, they were actively undercutting themselves. At the very time that they needed one another the most, they were foregoing their most valuable resource, their social support. Time and again during those perilous months, I saw companies jettison team trainings and social perks, ignoring plummeting team morale in favor of things deemed more important. But in fact, nothing was more important than what they were letting go of. We don't have to go to the brink of a collapsing economy to understand how easy it is to retreat into our own shells at the moment we need to be reaching out to others the most. We've all been there sometime or another. A daunting project gets dropped on our desk and we get consumed with worry that we'll fail to meet the demands. Is there enough time to get it all done? What will happen if we don't? As the deadline looms and the pressure mounts, we start eating lunch at our desks, working late, coming in on weekends. Soon we're focused like a laser, or so we tell ourselves, which means no FaceTime with direct reports, no casual hallway chats, no time even for non-essential calls with clients. Even our emails are more brusque and impersonal. As for time with family and friends, well, these things are the first to go when we're in crisis mode. But even though we're giving work our undivided attention, our productivity is declining. And as the deadline nears, our goal seems to be slipping further and further out of reach. And so we hunker down, shut off our cell phones, retreat into the bunker of ourselves, and double lock the door. One of two things usually happens at this juncture. Either we falter and fail to finish the project, or we power through it and get it done, then immediately get rewarded with another challenging project, though we now have zero oxygen left in our tank. Either way, 
were not only miserable, dejected, and overwhelmed, but lost in a dead end, unable to perform, and all alone. The most successful people take the exact opposite approach. Instead of turning inward, they actually hold tighter to their social support. Instead of divesting, they invest. Not only are these people happier, but they are more productive, engaged, energetic, and resilient. They know that their social relationships are the single greatest investment they can make in the happiness advantage. Investing in the happiness advantage. One of the longest running psychology studies of all time, the Harvard Men's Study, followed 268 men from their entrance into college in the late 1930s all the way through the present day. From this wealth of data, scientists have been able to identify the life circumstances and personal characteristics that distinguish the happiest, fullest lives from the least successful ones. In the summer of 2009, George Valiant, the psychologist who has directed the study for the last 40 years, told The Atlantic Monthly that he could sum up the findings in one word. Love, full stop. Could it really be so simple? Valiant wrote his own follow-up article that analyzed the data in great detail, and his conclusions proved the same, that there are 70 years of evidence that our relationships with other people matter, and matter more than anything else in the world. This study's findings have been duplicated time and again. In their book, Happiness, psychologists Ed Diener and Robert Biswas Diener review the massive amount of cross-cultural research that has been conducted on happiness over the last few decades. And they conclude that like food and air, we seem to need social relationships to thrive. That's because when we have a community of people we can count on, spouse, family, friends, colleagues, we multiply our emotional, intellectual, and physical resources. We bounce back from setbacks faster, accomplish more, and feel a greater sense of purpose. Furthermore, the effect on our happiness, and therefore on our ability to profit from the happiness advantage, is both immediate and long-lasting. First, social interactions jolt us with positivity in the moment. Then, each of these single connections strengthens a relationship over time, which raises our happiness baseline permanently. So when a colleague stops you in the hallway at work to say hello and ask about your day, the brief interaction actually sparks a continual upward spiral of happiness and its inherent rewards. Positive outliers already know this to be true. Indeed, it's what makes them positive outliers. In a study appropriately titled Very Happy People, researchers sought out the characteristics of the happiest 10% among us. Do they all live in warm climates? Are they all wealthy? Are they all physically fit? Turns out, there was one, and only one, characteristic that distinguished the happiest 10% from everybody else. The strength of their social relationships. My empirical study of well-being among 1,600 Harvard undergraduates found a similar result. Social support was a far greater predictor of happiness than any other factor, more than GPA, family income, SAT scores, age, gender, or race. In fact, the correlation between social support and happiness was 0.7. This may not sound like a big number, but for researchers, it's huge.
Most psychology findings are considered significant when they hit point three. The point is, the more social support you have, the happier you are. And as we know, the happier you are, the more advantages you accrue in nearly every domain of life. Surviving and thriving with social investment. Our need for social support isn't just in our heads. Evolutionary psychologists explain that the innate need to affiliate and form social bonds has been literally wired into our biology. When we make a positive social connection, the pleasure-induced hormone oxytocin is released into our bloodstream, immediately reducing anxiety and improving concentration and focus. Each social connection also bolsters our cardiovascular, neuroendocrine, and immune systems so that the more connections we make over time, the better we function. We have such a biological need for social support, our bodies can literally malfunction without it. For instance, lack of social contact can add 30 points to an adult's blood pressure reading. In his seminal book, Loneliness, University of Chicago psychologist John Cassiapo compiled more than 30 years worth of research to convincingly show that a dearth of social connections is actually just as deadly as certain diseases. Naturally, it causes psychological harm as well. It shouldn't surprise you that a national survey of 24,000 workers found that men and women with few social ties were two to three times more likely to suffer from major depression than people with strong social bonds. When we enjoy strong social support, on the other hand, we can accomplish impressive feats of resilience and even extend the length of our lives. One study found that people who received emotional support during the six months after a heart attack were three times more likely to survive. Another found that participating in a breast cancer support group actually doubled women's life expectancy post-surgery. In fact, researchers have found that social support has as much effect on life expectancy as smoking, high blood pressure, obesity, and regular physical activity. As one set of doctors put it, when launching a life raft, the prudent survivalist will not toss food overboard while retaining the deck furniture. If somebody must jettison a part of life, time with a mate should be last on the list. He needs that connection to live. When set adrift, it seems those of us who hold on to our raft mates, not just our rafts, are the ones who will stay afloat. Social capital as stress relief. The same strategy, hold on to others, is just as crucial for our survival as we navigate the daily stresses of the working world. Studies show that each positive interaction employees have during the course of the workday actually helps return the cardiovascular system back to resting levels, a benefit often termed work recovery, and that over the long haul, employees with more of these interactions become protected from the negative effects of job strain. Each connection also lowers levels of cortisol, a hormone related to stress, which helps employees recover faster from work-related stress and makes them better prepared to handle it in the future. Furthermore, studies have found that people with strong relationships are less likely to perceive situations as stressful in the first place. 
So in essence, investing in social connections means that you'll find it easier to interpret adversity as a path to growth and opportunity. And when you do have to experience the stress, you'll bounce back from it faster and better protected against its long-term negative effects. In the volatile world of work, this ability to manage stress, both physically and psychologically, is a significant competitive advantage. For one, it has been found to greatly reduce a company's healthcare costs and rate of absenteeism. But perhaps more important, it directly impacts individual performance. Researchers have found the physiological resourcefulness that employees gain from positive social interactions provides a foundation for workplace engagement. Employees can work for longer hours, with increased focus, and under more difficult conditions. For instance, when AT&T was suffering massive layoffs and internal turmoil after being split into three separate companies, one senior leader working daily in the trenches noticed that certain employees were faring better under the pressure than others. As he commented to Harvard professor Daniel Goleman, the pain is not being felt everywhere. In a lot of the tech units, where people work in tight teams and where they find great meaning in what they do together, they're fairly impervious to the turmoil. Why? Because individuals who invest in their social support systems are simply better equipped to thrive in even the most difficult circumstances, while those who withdraw from the people around them effectively cut off every line of protection they have available. At the very moment, they need them most. To fully understand the importance of this distinction and the consequences it has for our future success, let's take a quick trip to the gridiron. All I need to know, I learned from the National Football League. In the world of American football, a few positions get virtually all the attention. Quarterbacks, wide receivers, and star running backs. They're the ones who grab most of the headlines, and their paychecks and fame are testament to their importance. But another group of football players is equally highly paid and perhaps even more valued, the offensive line. And yet very few people know who they are or what they do. Almost no fans walk around wearing their jerseys, but they should. When a football team lines up on the field, the quarterback stands behind a line of five oversized human beings crouched down on the turf. This is the offensive line. Just inches away from them awaits the opposing team, ready to pounce. At the sound of the whistle, massive muscled bodies come flying forward, using every ounce of their weight and strength to rush the quarterback and smash him to the ground. The offensive line is the only thing standing between the quarterback and this charging mass of humanity. They don't score touchdowns. They don't kick field goals. They only have one job, protect the quarterback. But it is the most important job on the football field. After all, you can't win a football game if the quarterback is flat on his back before he ever has time to throw. When Hall of Fame quarterback Joe Montana first had the privilege of playing behind a really superb offensive line, he excelled like never before. As Michael Lewis writes in the book The Blind Side, Montana played like a kid who'd been given the answers to the test in advance. After the game, Montana told reporters, I'd never seen us execute like that. 
That's why it didn't look tough for us. But it was. Our line was stopping them. And when I got that time, things became easy. Everyone credited Joe Montana, but he credited his offensive line. Even though most of us live far removed from the football field, we each have our own version of an offensive line, our spouses, our families, and our friends. Surrounded by these people, big challenges feel more manageable, and small challenges don't even register on the radar. Just as the offensive line protects a quarterback from a particularly brutal sack, our social support prevents stress from knocking us down and getting in the way of our achieving our goals. And just as the offensive line helped Montana throw a touchdown that would have been otherwise impossible, our social ties help us capitalize on our own particular strengths to accomplish more in our work and in our lives. These benefits aren't confined to the short term either. In a longitudinal study of men over the age of 50, those with a high rate of stressful life experiences suffered from a far higher rate of mortality over the next seven years. But the same study found that this higher rate of mortality held true for everyone except the men who said that they had high levels of emotional support. Like a quarterback who has been protected from sacks his whole career, a lifetime of strong social relationships provides crucial protection against the dangerous effects of stress. We can't always stop the 350-pound linemen flying at us, but we can all invest in a strong offensive line, and that can make all the difference. They excel with a little help from their friends. Unfortunately, not everyone makes this investment. Often, the misguided urge to turn inward starts even before we enter the working world. You'll recall that as an officer of Harvard, I spent 12 years living in a dorm with undergraduates. While this afforded me many unique life experiences I wouldn't recommend, like going 12 years eating all my meals on trays, one of the best parts of being in the trenches was having the chance to see the different strategies these 18 to 22-year-olds devised to help them find their way through the maze of Harvard. Though every one of these students was exceptional in one way or another, when it came to handling the inevitable stresses of such a challenging and competitive environment, year after year, I noticed that certain students had a significant leg up, while others, despite all their intelligence and efforts, seemed to sabotage their own forward progress. Two freshmen in particular stand out in my memory, Amanda and Brittany. They were roommates, both had spirited personalities, and both made friends quickly and effortlessly that first September. But as midterms approached, their paths began to diverge. As the pressure mounted, Amanda found a secluded cubicle in the library and spent most of her days and nights there. She started skipping our dorm study breaks. She didn't have time for frivolous activities like sharing snacks and stories with her classmates. Once an active member of our dorm's ultimate Frisbee team, she stopped coming to practices and games. When I finally caught up with her one day in the dining hall, as she was taking her lunch to go, most likely back to the library, she admitted that she was just too stressed to focus on anything else but her schoolwork. My friends will understand, she said. It wasn't her friends I was worried about. Meanwhile, Brittany was flourishing. She wasn't oblivious to the challenges or pressures. 
She wasn't working any less hard than Amanda, but instead of quarantining herself in a cubicle, she was organizing study groups. For her Magic of Numbers class, note, course title not made up, she emailed a group of six friends and had each person write a summary of one week's readings, and then they convened at lunch a few times a week to share their work. I remember I once stumbled on one of these sessions, only to find them talking about The Simpsons. I thought that this was a math study group, I asked in mock exasperation. One young man looked up at me, then pointed at Brittany. We were ordered to make time for small talk, he said. When I checked in with her at a study break a few weeks later, where she was taking 10 minutes off from homework to join our Oreo eating contest, Brittany just shrugged her shoulders. It's a lot of work, but I don't know. I guess it's just nice to know we're pulling an all-nighter together. I won't belabor the point here, but let's just say that by January, one of these students had succumbed to the pressure and stress and was wishing she could transfer to someplace less competitive. The other was happy, well-adjusted, and performing exceptionally in her courses. While Amanda and Brittany are real people, they also represent the choices each of us has when faced with adversity. Many business leaders I encounter believe, just as Amanda did, that the road to success is one they have to travel alone. But this simply isn't the case. The most successful people I've worked with know that even in an extraordinarily competitive environment, we are more equipped to handle challenges and obstacles when we pool the resources of those around us and capitalize on even the smallest moments we spend interacting with others. Every time Brittany had lunch or a study session with her friends, she wasn't just having a good time. She was decreasing her stress level, priming her brain for high performance, and capitalizing on the ideas, energy, and motivation that social support provides. While Amanda was divesting from her network and floundering as a result, Brittany was investing in something that continually paid dividends. Just as social support is a prescription for happiness, and an antidote to stress, it is also a prime contributor of achievement in the workplace. Investing in high performance. We learned in Principle 5, the Zorro Circle, that those of us who believe we have control over the outcome of our fates have a huge advantage in work and in life. This fact can't be denied, but it also doesn't mean we have to exist in a vacuum or that our success hinges on our efforts alone. Remember the 70-year-long Harvard Men's study? Researchers found that social bonds weren't just predictive of overall happiness, but also of eventual career achievement, occupational success, and income. This truth is sometimes still difficult for many of us to accept, given how deep the ethic of individualism runs in our culture. After all, Reading Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, is practically an American rite of passage. We are particularly independent-minded when it comes to assigning credit for achievements. Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck likes to illustrate the folly of this belief by asking her students to describe how they picture history's greatest minds at work. When you think of Thomas Edison, she asks them, what do you see? He's standing in a white coat in a lab-type room, comes the average reply. 
He's leaning over a light bulb. Suddenly, it works. Is he alone? Dweck asks. Yes. He's kind of a reclusive guy who likes to tinker on his own. As Dweck relishes in pointing out, this couldn't be further from the truth. Edison actually thrived in group settings. And when he invented the light bulb, he did so with the help of 30 assistants. Edison was actually a social creative, not a lone wolf. And when it comes to society's most innovative thinkers, so often assumed to be eccentric, solitary geniuses, he was not the exception to the rule. We've all heard the popular maxim, two heads are better than one, but the benefits of social interaction in the workplace go far beyond group brainstorming. Having people we can count on for support in the office, even having people we can talk to about last night's Lost episode, actually fuels individual innovation, creativity, and productivity. For instance, one study of 212 employees found that social connections at work predicted more individual learning behavior, which means that the more socially connected employees felt, the more they took the time to figure out ways to improve their own efficiency or their own skill set. Perhaps most important, social connections motivate. When over a thousand highly successful professional men and women were interviewed as they approached retirement and asked what had motivated them the most throughout their careers, overwhelmingly, they placed work friendships above both financial gain and individual status. In Good to Great, Jim Collins illuminated a similar truth. The people we interviewed from good to great companies clearly loved what they did largely because they loved who they did it with. The better we feel about these workplace relationships, the more effective we will be. For example, a study of over 350 employees in 60 business units at a financial services company found that the greatest predictor of a team's achievement was how the members felt about one another. This is especially important for managers because while they often have little control over the backgrounds or skill sets of employees placed on their teams, they do have control over the level of interaction and rapport. Studies show that the more team members are encouraged to socialize and interact face-to-face, the more engaged they feel, the more energy they have, and the longer they can stay focused on a task. In short, the more the team members invest in their social cohesion, the better the results of their work. High-quality connections. To make a difference to work performance and job satisfaction, social contact need not always be deep to be effective. Organizational psychologists have found that even brief encounters can form high-quality connections, which fuel openness, energy, and authenticity among coworkers, and in turn, lead to a whole host of measurable, tangible gains in performance. Jane Dutton, a psychologist who specializes in this subject at the University of Michigan Business School, explains that any point of contact with another person can potentially be a high-quality connection. One conversation, one email exchange, one moment of connecting in a meeting can infuse both participants with a greater sense of vitality, giving them a bounce in their steps and a greater capacity to act. Again, this isn't just in the interest of having a fun, friendly workplace, though that is an important bonus. 
Each one of these social connections pays dividends. At IBM, for example, when MIT researchers spent an entire year following 2,600 employees, observing their social ties, even using mathematical formulas to analyze the size and scope of their address books and buddy lists, they found that the more socially connected the IBM employees were, the better they performed. They could even quantify the difference. On average, every email contact was worth an added $948 in revenue. There, in black and white, is the power of social investment. And IBM wisely decided to capitalize on it by starting a program at its Cambridge, Massachusetts office to facilitate the introductions of employees who didn't yet know one another. Google is perhaps the most famous example of a company that truly understands the importance of social connections. This isn't just lip service. Google reflects this understanding in their practices. Not only do company cafeterias stay open well past the hours of the traditional workday, making it easy for employees to dine together as much as possible, Google employees have access to on-site daycare and are even encouraged to make time to visit their kids throughout the day. UPS is another successful company that has invested in social capital. Every day in cities and towns across the country, you can find three or four local UPS trucks parked together as their drivers sit nearby eating lunch. They swap stories, information, and misplaced packages. Given that this practice takes the drivers off their scheduled routes and takes more time than a solitary lunch would, many people are surprised that the UPS brass, so obsessed with efficiency, would encourage the practice. But they do. They know that this social interaction pays out in the long run, not just for the individual drivers, but for the organization as a whole. Other companies like Southwest Airlines, Domino's Pizza, and The Limited have set up programs that foster social investment, literally, by allowing employees to donate money to colleagues confronted with medical and financial emergencies. The result is that the employees involved, and even those who aren't, but simply know that the program is there, feel a greater commitment to one another and also to the company as a whole. At one Fortune 500 retail organization, a manager shared his reaction to their employee support foundation. I have a sense of pride in the company. I think it's good to give and, you know, it definitely makes me feel that I'm working for a company that shares in some of my sensibilities and cares about people. These feelings then translate into real dividends, including lower absenteeism and turnover rates, and increased employee motivation and engagement. Glue guys. Of course, sweeping corporate policies like these aren't always necessary. Small differences can have just as much of an impact. Once on a visit to the London offices of financial giant UBS, I learned it was a weekly tradition for the traders to gather around a beer cart on Friday afternoon. A few years ago, the dean of Harvard Law School had similar ideas about improving the quality of life for her overstressed law students. She set up coffee stations between classrooms and a volleyball court in the yard so that students could find ways to socialize, even if just for a few minutes, between grueling classes. Sadly, these policies are often the first to go when companies find themselves in financial straits. 
Another example of our tendency to divest when the going gets tough. UBS recently suspended its weekly beer cart because of budget constraints. But thanks to the cohesive culture the tradition had helped create, it lived on. When I last visited the office, employees couldn't wait to tell me about how two managers had dipped into their own lightened pockets to buy beer for their teams. They knew that preserving this ritual would go a long way towards boosting morale, especially during that difficult time. If the mood of their employees when I visited was any indication, it worked. The people who actively invest in their relationships are the heart and soul of a thriving organization, the force that drives their teams forward. In sports, these people are called glue guys. As the Wall Street Journal has explained, this type of player quietly holds winning teams together. Statisticians don't buy that they exist, but psychologists do, and players and managers swear by them. Given that a baseball team spends a minimum of 81 games a year on the road, playing and living together, the importance of getting along shouldn't be too surprising. In the high-stakes environment of professional sports, teams can disintegrate in a hurry under the pressure. Glue guys keep players stuck together at these tough moments when it is most tempting to let go. The Vertical Couple In one of my favorite episodes of the wickedly satirical sitcom The Office, Stanley, a grumpy employee with no patience for his bumbling boss's antics, has been ordered by his doctor to wear a heart monitor to work. He's recently had some heart trouble, and the monitor will warn him if his heart rate rises to a dangerous level. Enter Michael Scott, poster child for disastrously inept bosses everywhere. Every time Michael wanders within two feet of Stanley, the heart monitor goes off, and the closer Michael gets, the louder and more uncontrollably it beeps. Mere proximity to his incompetent and irritating boss causes Stanley's heart rate to skyrocket. Of course, this is a plot of a television show, but it's actually not as removed from reality as it sounds. Back in the real world, a team of British researchers decided to follow a group of employees who worked for two different supervisors on alternate days. One they had good rapport with, and one they didn't. In other words, a boss they loved and a Michael Scott. And indeed, on the days the dreaded boss worked, their average blood pressure shot up. A longer 15-year study even found that employees who had a difficult relationship with their boss were 30% more likely to suffer from coronary heart disease. It seems a bad relationship with your boss can be as bad for you as a steady diet of fried foods and not nearly as much fun. Of all the social ties we have at work, the boss-employee relationship, what Daniel Goleman has cleverly termed a vertical couple, is the single most important social bond you can cultivate at work. Studies have found that the strength of the bond between manager and employee is the prime predictor of both daily productivity and the length of time people stay at their jobs. Gallup, which has spent decades studying the practices of the world's leading organizations, estimates that U.S. companies lose $360 billion each year due to lost productivity from employees who have poor relationships with their supervisor.
It is no wonder the vertical couple could have such a profound effect on company performance, given that, as Goldman says, it is a basic unit of organizational life, something akin to human molecules that interact to form the latticework of relationship that is the organization. So when this relationship is strong, companies reap the rewards. Those MIT researchers found that employees with strong ties to their manager brought in more money than those with only weak ties, besting the company average by $588 of revenue each month. And in a study astonishingly large in scope, when Gallup asked 10 million employees around the world if they could agree or disagree with the following statement, my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. Those who agreed were found to be more productive, contributed more to profits, and were significantly more likely to stay with their company long-term. The best leaders already know this, and they go out of their way to make employees feel cared for. When a fire destroyed the Malden Mills factory in a small town in Massachusetts, CEO Aaron Feuerstein announced that he would continue to pay the salaries of all 3,000 workers who were suddenly without a job. In their book, In Good Company, Don Cohen and Lawrence Prusak discuss how much this one action shocked the American public. Feuerstein was heralded as a selfless hero, even invited to the White House. But as the authors point out, that the public and the business world would consider Feuerstein's actions so extraordinary and apparently unbusinesslike suggests that many people do not yet understand the value of social capital in organizations. The money he spent was an investment in the future of his business. It is clearly in the best interests of everyone involved, the boss, the employee, and the organization as a whole, to prioritize relationships. Unfortunately, in today's harried and fast-paced work environment, far too few leaders put in the time required to forge strong bonds with either their colleagues or their employees. It certainly doesn't require paying everyone's salary. All it takes, we've seen, is a commitment to frequent and positive social interaction. And yet, a recent poll found that 90% of respondents believed workplace incivility was a serious problem. Many leaders simply refuse to put in the effort, and the reasons are many and varied. Not enough hours in the day, a fear of undermining their authority by getting too close to those they manage, a perpetual crisis mode mindset. The woods are on fire, the sky is falling, and even the simple belief that work is for work, not friendship. And yet the more they ignore the power of social investment, the more they undermine both their company's performance and their own. Appreciating Assets Financial planners tell us that the surest way to grow our stock portfolios is to keep reinvesting the dividends. So it is with our social portfolios as well. Not only do we need to invest in new relationships, we should always be reinvesting in our current relationships because, like our stocks, social support networks grow stronger the longer they are held. Fortunately, there is a whole host of techniques we can use to aid us in this endeavor. Every time you cross the office threshold, 
you have an opportunity to form or strengthen a high-quality connection. When traveling down busy corridors, greet colleagues you cross paths with and remember to look them in the eye. This isn't just for show. Neuroscience has revealed that when we make eye contact with someone, it actually sends a signal to the brain that triggers empathy and rapport. Ask interested questions, schedule face-to-face -face meetings, and initiate conversations that aren't always task-oriented. A popular manager at a top 100 law firm once told me that he set out to learn one new thing about a coworker each day which he would then reference in later conversations. The social capital he invested in each day paid out in increasingly large ways as employees felt more connected to both him and the firm. Of course, this does take effort on the front end. In an interview with Fast Company, one CEO and former head of a venture capital firm acknowledged that to maximize the value that one gets from a relationship, one has to give a great deal. I spend a fair amount of my time making introductions, providing referrals, providing connections, and generally engaging with the breadth of the community to benefit the business and personal lives of others. We all know that an important part of maintaining a social bond is being there, both physically and emotionally, when someone is in need. But an interesting new body of research suggests that how we support people during good times, more than bad times, affects the quality of a relationship. Sharing upbeat news with someone is called capitalization, and it helps multiply the benefits of the positive event, as well as strengthen the bond between the two people involved. The key to gaining these benefits is how you respond to someone's good news. Shelley Gable, a leading psychologist at the University of California, has found that there are four different types of responses we can give to someone's good news, and only one of them contributes positively to the relationship. The winning response is both active and constructive. It offers enthusiastic support, as well as specific comments and follow-up questions. That's wonderful. I'm glad your boss noticed how hard you've been working. When does your promotion go into effect? Interestingly, her research shows passive responses to good news, that's nice, can be just as harmful to the relationship as blatantly negative ones. You got the promotion? I'm surprised they didn't give it to Sally. She seems more suited to the job. Ouch. Perhaps the most destructive, though, is ignoring the news entirely. Have you seen my keys? Gable studies have shown that active, constructive responding enhances relationship commitment and satisfaction and fuels the degree to which people feel understood, validated, and cared for during a discussion, all of which contribute to the happiness advantage. Building a socially invested team. If you're a leader, you not only have the power to strengthen your own connections, but to foster a work environment that values instead of hinders social investment. For example, when new hires enter an organization, Leaders can take the time to introduce them to everyone, even, and especially, people in other departments with whom they might not be working directly. In fact, why stop there? Existing employees, too, should do all they can to meet others in far-flung corners of the organization. That's why some companies have long-term employees spend one day learning the ropes of a different department. 
After all, the more chances for employees to meet one another, the more chances they have to forge high-quality connections. And the more buy-in from human resources, the more effective this strategy becomes. So if you're in a leadership position in your company, or even if you're not, simply introducing two employees who don't know each other is probably the easiest and fastest way to invest in social dividends. To be even more effective, the introductions should go beyond just name, department, and job description. Mike Morrison, Vice President and Dean of the University of Toyota, likes to ask employees, what's on the other side of your card? In other words, the front of your business card may read, Managing Director, but you may better identify with big picture thinker or educator or calm under fire. This kind of information or even a few simple details like where a person lives, what his or her favorite hobby is, cuts through the red tape to get somewhere more meaningful and it can more immediately and effectively forge a connection between two people. It is important to note that building strong social capital does not require that all colleagues become best friends or even that everyone like one another all the time. This would be impossible. But what does matter is that there be mutual respect and authenticity. Coercing employees into awkward icebreakers or forced bonding activities, like making everyone at a meeting share something about their private lives, only breeds disconnection and mistrust. Better that these moments happen organically, which they will if the environment is right. The best leaders give their employees the space and time to let moments of social connection develop on their own. So the more physical spaces available to publicly commune, the better. When a CEO of one company saw that some of the best social connections, people laughing, swapping stories about their weekend, bouncing ideas off one another, were taking place on the stairwells. He actually expanded the stairways and put coffee machines on the landings to encourage this practice. Time for team lunches and after-hours socialization is also crucial. Even the classically boring meeting, says Jane Dutton, can be designed in a way to foster high-quality connections. Meeting practices that encourage member contribution and active listening foster group commitment. One of the best managing directors I know makes his meetings BlackBerry-free so that all eyes are on one another at all times. He is an example of a leader Dutton would call relationally attentive. The more attentive we are to the relationship dynamics of our teams, the better. If our goal is to foster team cohesion, the language we use matters. Remember the difference in group cooperation when a task was termed the community game instead of the Wall Street game? We can promote social connection at work just by using language that implies a common purpose and interdependence. Dutton also recommends that we work on being present, both physically and mentally. That means when somebody walks into your office to talk, don't stare at your computer screen. When someone calls you on the phone, don't keep typing that email. An accountant once told me that the minute he heard a clicking keyboard on the other end of the phone call, he knew his boss was disengaged. Forging a connection requires active listening, giving someone your full attention, and also allowing them to have their say. As Dutton explains, 
Many people listen as if waiting for an opportunity to make their own point. Instead, focus on the speaker and their opinion, and then ask interested questions to learn more. The leaders most committed to social investment also get moving, quite literally. The best way to form more connections at work is to get out from behind the desk. This idea of managing by walking around was popularized in the 1980s by leadership expert Tom Peters, who learned about the practice from the leaders of Hewlett Packard. Peters even gave it an acronym, MBWA, to signify its importance. MBWA allows managers to get to know employees, share good news and best practices, hear concerns, offer solutions, and deliver encouragement. Jim Kelly, CEO of UPS, is one famous practitioner. I don't even know the phone numbers of the people on our management committee, he has said, because I never pick up the phone if they're in the office. We just walk into each other's offices when we need to talk. 25 years after first discussing its role in organizational success, Tom Peters says MBWA is as important as ever and still woefully underused. Connecting with employees face-to-face -face also provides a perfect opportunity to put into practice a recommendation we talked about earlier in this audio program, frequent recognition and feedback. Not only can it raise a team above the Lasada line, but delivering specific and authentic praise for a job well done also strengthens the connection between two people. This is why I often ask managers to write an email of praise or thanks to a friend, family member, or colleague each morning before they start their day's work. Not just because it contributes to their own happiness, but because it very literally cements a relationship. Whether the thank you is for years of emotional support or for one day of help around the office, expressions of gratitude at work have been proven to strengthen both personal and professional bonds. In fact, studies have shown that gratitude sparks an upward spiral of relationship growth where each individual feels motivated to strengthen the bond. It also predicts feelings of integration and cooperation within a larger group, which means that the more gratitude one employee expresses towards another employee, the more social cohesion they feel among the whole team. In other words, gratitude can fuel your own identity as a glue guy. Lessons from a fire maze. As I saw when the economy crumbled, Sometimes it takes a crisis to teach us the importance of social investment. In a front-page story on this phenomenon, the Washington Post reported a marked increase in carpooling and community bonding once the recession hit. People even started holding yard work parties where neighbors could swap lawnmowers and landscaping advice. As one man noted, people are helping each other and getting back together. You're not the Lone Ranger anymore. Even the executives I work with, people who only months before the recession have been inward-looking, personal results-driven, and intent on going it alone, started espousing and practicing cooperation and teamwork in those dark days after the collapse. Workaholics, with suddenly less on their plate, started coming home earlier to spend more time with their children and spouses. Formerly individualistic managers started leaving the comfort of their offices and making the rounds cubicle to cubicle. They may have been left no other choice at first. 
and they might backslide once the economy goes on the upswing again. But many have told me that being forced to re-examine their life and work has ended up being the best thing that could have happened to them. In an ideal world, of course, it shouldn't take a crisis to bring this point home, especially given the wealth of evidence showing that our relationships are the greatest predictor of both happiness and high performance. So even though our basic instincts might tell us to turn inward, positive psychology knows better. When caught in a fire, holding on to others is the best chance we have for successfully finding our way out of the maze. And in everyday life, both at work and at home, our social support can prove the difference between succumbing to the cult of the average and achieving our fullest potential. Part three, the ripple effect. Spreading the happiness advantage at work, at home, and beyond. A couple of months ago, I spoke to a group of CEOs and their spouses in Hong Kong. Afterward, over drinks at a reception, a very self-assured, if slightly tipsy CEO, shook my hand warmly and said, thank you, Sean, that research was brilliant and rings so true. He then leaned in and whispered conspiratorially, I already do most of it, but my wife really needed to hear it. His stage whisper was loud enough for everyone in line to hear, and as he gestured to his wife standing 15 feet away, I recognized her as one of the first people I had talked to that evening. I smiled and whispered back, equally loudly and conspiratorially, Thank you, sir. She said the same thing about you. I relate the story not as an example of how to stir up trouble in a perfect stranger's marriage, but to show that no matter where I am in the world, most people think this research is useful for them, but even more useful for all the people around them. The person we have the greatest power to change is ourselves. But while the seven principles must start at the individual level, they by no means end there. To conclude this audio program, I want to talk about how making these changes in ourselves can impact those around us. Once we start capitalizing on the happiness advantage in our own lives, the positive changes quickly ripple out. This is why positive psychology is so powerful. Using all seven principles together sparks an upward spiral of happiness and success so that the benefits quickly become multiplicative. Then the positive effects begin to ripple outward increasing the happiness of everyone around you, changing the way your colleagues work, and eventually shaping your entire organization. Spiraling upward. This whole process starts with your brain. As we saw in principle six, your thoughts and actions are constantly shaping and reshaping the neural pathways in the brain. This means that the more you practice the exercises outlined in this program, and the more you shift your mindset toward the positive, the more you cement these habits for the long haul. And as your brain becomes more adept at one habit, it improves your ability to capitalize on another. That's because these principles don't work in isolation. I presented them as seven distinct principles for the purpose of clarity. But as you might have already noticed, they're inextricably linked. And using several in concert with one another only enhances their collective power. For instance, the Tetris effect fuels falling up because training ourselves to scan the world for the positive 
can help us reinterpret failures as opportunities for growth. And social investment can help us in our quest to master the 20-second rule, since strong social support holds us accountable to new habits. And of course, we can also use the 20-second rule to improve our social investment by decreasing the activation energy required to form high-quality connections at work. And the more high-quality connections we form, the more likely we are to see our work as a calling instead of just a job, which in turn fuels the happiness advantage. So on and so on. The effects of one principle become the trigger for another so that they become far more than just the sum of their parts. Together, they can take us farther than anyone could on its own. Rippling outward. The benefits don't stop there. The more we capitalize on the happiness advantage ourselves, the more we can impact the lives of those around us. Extraordinarily, recent research exploring the role of social networks in shaping human behavior has proven that much of our behavior is literally contagious, that our habits, attitudes, and actions spread through a complicated web of connections to infect those around us. In their groundbreaking book, Connected, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler draw on years of research to show how our actions are constantly cascading and bouncing off each other in every which way and direction. Ties do not extend outward in straight lines like spokes on a wheel, they write. Instead, these paths double back on themselves and spiral around like a tangled pile of spaghetti, weaving in and out of other paths that rarely ever leave the plate. This theory holds that our attitudes and behaviors don't only infect the people we interact with directly, like our colleagues, friends, and families, but that each individual's influence actually appears to extend to people within three degrees. So when you use these principles to make positive changes in your own life, you are unconsciously shaping the behavior of an incredible number of people. As James Fowler explains it, I know that I'm not just having an impact on my son, I'm potentially having impact on my son's best friend's mother. This influence adds up. Fowler and Christakis estimate that there are nearly 1,000 people within three degrees of most of us. This is a true ripple effect. By trying to make ourselves happier and more successful, we actually have the ability to improve the lives of 1,000 people around us. At this point, this might seem a little far-fetched, to begin to understand why our behavior is so infectious and our influence so powerful, we need to first take a look at one of my favorite experiments. Smiles in the Brain I begin most of my lectures by asking the audience to break up into pairs. Then I say something like the following. Over the course of your life, you have excelled in part because of your impressive self-discipline. You have used it to study, so you could pass the classes you needed to, apply to the schools and jobs you needed to, and be successful enough that you are in this room to hear this lecture today. I want you to take all of that self-discipline you've been cultivating for the past couple decades to do the following. For the next seven seconds, no matter what your partner says or does, I want you to show absolutely no emotional reaction. Do not get angry, sad, or frustrated, and do not smile or laugh. Go completely blank. Show no emotion, no matter what. 
I then ask each person number two to simply look their partner in the eyes and smile at them genuinely. I've done this experiment hundreds of times in corporate settings across the world with everyone from nervous newbies to cantankerous lifers. The result is always the same. Virtually no one can refrain from returning their partner's smile, and most break into laughter almost immediately. It doesn't matter if I do this experiment during a week of massive layoffs or on a day when the stock market has plunged 600 points. I still see the same involuntary explosion of smiles. Even in parts of the world where smiling is less of a social norm, 80 to 85% of the participants cannot stop themselves from smiling. If you think about this, it's really pretty incredible. After all, if these people have the self-discipline and focus to work 10 to 16-hour days, lead global teams, and manage multi-million dollar projects, surely they can handle a task as simple as controlling their facial expressions for a mere seven seconds, right? But the fact is, they can't because something is going on in their brain that they aren't even consciously aware of. This mysterious force is the foundation of the ripple effect. Mirror, mirror on the wall. One Friday evening, I landed in Australia, exhausted but excited about my very first adventure down under. That weekend, I intended to visit the Opera House, Koala Park, and the Harbour Bridge before Monday rolled around, and I was due in downtown Sydney to run an executive training session. But first I headed down to the hotel lobby to engage in one of my favorite business trip rituals. Find a local bar, watch local sports, listen to locals talk. I was lucky enough to grab a stool just as an important rugby match was about to start on TV. Soon, a boisterous crowd had gathered around to watch. The match was hardly underway before one of the rugby players got decked. Hard. Mid-stride, with ball in hand, he had taken a swift elbow to the face that pitched him backward in a way I thought physically impossible for someone with bones. The entire bar erupted in an audible groan. I saw the man to my right put his hands to his face in the exact spot the rugby player had been hit. Then I noticed the guy sitting next to him had just done the same. And then I realized, amazingly, I had done it too. Now, we were in a bar in Sydney, while the game was at a stadium in Brisbane, several hundred miles away. None of us was on the rugby pitch, nor had any of us been assaulted by an errant elbow. Yet we had all responded physically, involuntarily, and quite dramatically, as though we ourselves had been hit. What happened at that Australian sports bar is exactly the same thing that happens when I do the smile experiment. But only in the last decade have scientists finally had the technology to peer inside our brains and uncover the reason behind it. What they found were something called mirror neurons, specialized brain cells that can actually sense and then mimic the feelings, actions, and physical sensations of another person. Let's say a person is pricked by a needle. The neurons in the pain center of his or her brain will immediately light up which should come as no surprise. But what is a surprise is that when that same person sees someone else receive a needle prick, the same set of neurons lights up, just as though he himself had been pricked. In other words, 
he actually feels a hint of the pain of a needle prick, even though he himself hasn't been touched. If this sounds incredible, believe me when I tell you it has been replicated in countless other experiments involving sensations that range from pain to fear to happiness to disgust. In fact, I bet you've even experienced this in your daily life. Have you ever been watching someone play golf on TV and catch yourself involuntarily moving in the direction of a swing? Obviously, your conscious brain knows that you're sitting on a couch eating potato chips. But another small part of your brain, the part where the mirror neurons reside, thinks you are out on that green. Incidentally, this is one reason athletes watch training videos and play video games. Because even without physical practice, the effects of practice get wired into their brains. Then, because mirror neurons are often right next to motor neurons in the brain, copied feelings often lead to copied actions. Suddenly, you are moving like you're swinging a golf club, without even knowing it. This is why smiles become contagious, and why babies automatically mimic the funny faces their parents make. And it's why watching someone get elbowed in the face in Brisbane immediately caused a bar full of rugby fans in Sydney to reach toward their own faces in agony. Your colleagues are contagious. This phenomenon isn't exclusive to physical sensations or actions. Thanks to these same mirror neurons, our emotions too are enormously contagious. As we pass through the day, our brains are constantly processing the feelings of people around us, taking note of the inflection in someone's voice, the look behind their eyes, the stoop of their shoulders. In fact, the amygdala can read and identify an emotion in another person's face within 33 milliseconds, and then just as quickly prime us to feel the same. In addition to the subconscious process, people also consciously assess the mood of those around them and act accordingly. Both processes together make it possible for emotions to jump from person to person in an instant. In fact, studies have shown that when three strangers meet in a room, the most emotionally expressive person transmits his or her mood to the others within just two minutes. Unfortunately, the power of emotional contagion means that overt negativity can infect a group of people almost instantly. Daniel Goldman couldn't have said it better. Like secondhand smoke, the leakage of emotions can make a bystander an innocent casualty of someone else's toxic state. This means that when we feel anxious or adopt an overtly negative mindset, these feelings will start to seep into every interaction we have, whether we like it or not. You may have noticed that when your boss walks into a meeting in a palpably bad mood, within just minutes, it will have spread to the entire room. And the effects ripple out from there as each worker returns back to his or her own office, spreading that negativity to everyone in his or her path. If just two minutes can have such an impact, imagine the effects of sharing a work environment with an overtly negative person for two weeks or two years. In fact, emotions are so shared Organizational psychologists have found that each workplace develops its own group emotion or group affective tone, which over time creates shared emotion norms that are proliferated and reinforced by the behavior, both verbal and nonverbal, of the employees.
We have all encountered office environments that suffer from toxic emotion norms. And now we also know that their bottom line results suffer because of it. Spreading the happiness advantage. Luckily, positive emotions are also contagious, which makes them a powerful tool in our quest for high performance in the workplace. Positive emotional contagion starts when people subconsciously mimic the body language, tone of voice, and facial expressions of those around them. Amazing as it might sound, once people mimic the physical behaviors tied to these emotions, it causes them to feel the emotion themselves. Smiling, for instance, tricks your brain into thinking you're happy. So it starts producing the neurochemicals that actually do make you happy. Scientists call this the facial feedback hypothesis, and it is the basis of the recommendation, fake it till you make it. While authentic positivity will always trump its faux counterpart, there is significant evidence that changing your behavior first, even your facial expression and posture, can dictate emotional change. So the happier everyone is around you, the happier you will become. This is why we laugh more at a funny movie when we're in a theater full of laughing people, and why television sitcoms use a laugh track. Likewise, the happier we are at work, the more positivity we transmit to our colleagues, teammates, and clients, which can eventually tip the emotion of an entire work team. Few people have illuminated this domino effect more perfectly than Yale psychologist Siegel Barsade, who conducted a study where he assigned volunteers a group task and then secretly instructed one member of the group to be overtly positive. He then videotaped the proceedings, tracked the emotions of each individual team member before and after the session, and assessed both individual and group performance on the task itself. The results were remarkable. When the positive team member entered the meeting, his mood became instantly contagious, traveling around the room and infecting those around him. Furthermore, this positive mood improved each individual team member's performance, as well as their ability to accomplish the task as a group. The teams where one person sparked positive emotional contagion experienced less group conflict, more cooperation, and most important, greater overall performance on the task at hand. So just one positive team member, one person using the happiness advantage, can affect both the individual attitudes and performance of those around him, as well as the dynamic and accomplishments of the group as a whole. Of course, some people have a more powerful effect on a group's emotional tone than others. For starters, the more genuinely expressive someone is, the more their mindset and feelings spread. But if openly expressing positivity doesn't come naturally to you, there are other ways your own positive habits can become contagious. For instance, the stronger your social connections, the more influence you wield. You may have noticed that when you spend time with a close friend, you feel in tune with each other. This is because the neural activity in your brain's emotional center is actually mirroring his or hers, and vice versa and soon you fall into sync, like two pianos playing the same song. When you walk down the hallway together, your arms and legs even swing in sync. You two are in rapport, the basis of positive social connection and a major conduit for spreading the happiness advantage. Rapport demands our full attention, our warmth, and our coordinated responsiveness. In return, 
we feel a resonance that not only increases our happiness, but actually makes us more successful and productive. Workers in rapport think more creatively and efficiently, and teams in rapport perform at higher levels. Their thoughts are attuned, and their brains are in effect working as one. The more socially invested we are, the more chances we have at attaining this level of rapport, which in turn makes our own behavior more contagious. So when we model the type of mindset and habits that fuel high performance, we are in effect instilling these very mindsets and habits in our colleagues, friends, and loved ones. One study of Dartmouth College students by economist Bruce Sacerdote illustrates how powerful this influence is. He found that when students with low grade point averages simply began rooming with higher scoring students, their grade point averages increased. These students, according to the researchers, appeared to infect each other with good and bad study habits, such that a roommate with a high grade point average would drag upward the GPA of his lower scoring roommate. One way to build rapport and therefore extend this influence is with eye contact. Studies show the rapport strengthens between two people when they lock eyes, proving that the old business wisdom about always looking people in the eye is actually scientifically sound advice. This is also why couples so often say to each other, look at me when I'm talking to you, and why orgasms are stronger when we look into our partner's eyes. Eye contact tells our mirror neurons to fire, and when they do, the result is better performance, whether we're in the boardroom or in the bedroom. The power to spark positive emotional contagion multiplies if you're in a leadership position. Studies have found that when leaders are in a positive mood, their employees are more likely to be in a positive mood themselves, to exhibit pro-social helping behaviors towards one another, and to coordinate tasks more efficiently and with less effort. Sit around an unsmiling or anxious boss for too long, and you too will start to feel sad or stressed regardless of how you felt originally. Whereas if your boss is using the seven principles to increase his own positivity, your mere proximity to him will allow you to start to feel the benefits. And not just of greater happiness, but of all the advantages that come cascading along with it. As we now know, people in positive moods are better able to think creatively and logically and to engage in complex problem solving, even be better negotiators. It is no surprise then that CEOs who are rated high on scales of positive expression are more likely to have employees who report being happy and who describe their workplace as a climate conducive to performance. Similar studies of sports teams have found not only that one happy player was enough to infect the mood of the entire team, but also that the happier the team was, the better they played. So without even actively trying to change the way you lead, Using the seven principles to increase your own level of positivity will start to change the group dynamics and performance of your whole team. What this means is that leading by example is no longer an empty mantra. Practicing the seven principles in your own life can actually become your most effective leadership tool without your even knowing it. Take an executive who has been writing down a gratitude list each night before he goes to sleep. As he leads his team's morning meeting, he is now in a mindset that allows him to spot more opportunities to be positive, which might compel him to praise the work of one of his direct reports. 
This in turn, A, primes the recipient's brain with positive emotions, which helps them think more creatively and efficiently. B, gives them a sense of having achieved a goal, however small, and thus the confidence to go after bigger and bigger ones. And C, provides the spark that builds a high-quality connection between the executive and his employee and cements the social cohesion and organizational commitment of the whole group. All of this ensures that each person in the room will spread positivity to their own reports, and so on and so on, until each person and the organization as a whole profits from it. Thus, what started as a personal at-home exercise for one member of management trickles down to impact everyone at every level of the organization. Every big wave starts small. It has been said that a single butterfly flapping its wings can create a hurricane halfway around the world. As this theory known as the butterfly effect goes, the flap of a butterfly's wings may be one tiny motion, but it creates a slight gust of wind that eventually picks up greater and greater speed and power. In other words, one very small change can trigger a cascade of bigger ones. Each one of us is like that butterfly, and each tiny move toward a more positive mindset can send ripples of positivity through our organizations, our families, and our communities. Remember in part one, we talked about how we can never really know the true extent of our potential. Well, the ripple effect is the perfect example of how there are no real discernible limits to our influence and our power. When you capitalize on the happiness advantage, you are doing far more than improving your own well-being and performance. The more you profit from the principles in this audio program, the more everyone around you profits. In principle one, we talked about the Copernican revolution underway in the field of psychology and how just as Copernicus discovered that the Earth actually orbits the sun, recent advances in positive psychology and neuroscience have taught us that success actually revolves around happiness, not the other way around. Well, as it turns out, and as you've heard in this chapter, this finding is even more revolutionary than we could have ever imagined. Because we now also know that it's not just our individual success that orbits around our happiness. By making changes within ourselves, we can actually bring the benefits of the happiness advantage to our teams, our organizations, and everyone around us. This is Sean Acor. We hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Happiness Advantage, The Seven Principles of Positive Psychology That Fuel Success and Performance at Work by Sean Acor. This program was directed by Paul Rubin, executive producer Dan Zitt, this program was edited at John Marshall Sound. Text copyright 2010 by Sean Acor. Production copyright 2010, Random House Inc. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.